0: You know, it's funny. I'm never quite ready for Friday's show because we started uh, an hour earlier. Uh, originally, it was because we had our our, uh, our college student uh, Emerald. Uh, excuse me, Emerald. <laughs> I was texting Emerald Robinson this morning about uh, some show ideas. Anyway, hopefully, we'll get those uh, on at some point. I've got Lou. Uh, I'm trying to get connected with Lindell TV. I want to get on with Steve Bannon. I want to get on with Mike Lindell and Brandon House again. So um, I got plans. I mean, this is this is actually a a, a fascinating time. Uh, for Action Radio because I think the growth that we can experience in the next two years is staggering. You know, we'll be break through the censorship. Uh, Hopefully we'll get our censorship bill through Congress. Uh, But now that uh, it looks like the Republicans are actually going to squeak out a victory from what should have been, you know, a two-thirds veto-proof majority if they get their act together. you know, been, there might be some possibilities here because Republicans will actually be able to put bills forward uh, even better if the Senate goes Republican. Uh, not that I have any great love of Republicans. It's just that I can't stand the Democrats. The Republicans to me are, are effectively useless, but at least if they're in the majority, you know, they can block things. And so that's what's going to be good. Anyway, so um, who was I, <laughs> I forgot how I started this entire thing. Oh, Amber. Uh, Amber Kemper, who is our Constitutional Reporter. Uh, well, you know, college folks get busy. They've got exams and stuff going on. So hopefully we'll get her back uh, when she has time to do the constitution Report. In the meantime, you got me. And so I'll be here until Shirley Watson joins us. Shirley uh, does the um, D.C. Project Women and Guns Report. And we have uh, another gap, too. Derek uh, Park, our financial uh, reporter, is going to be out today as well. He's a veteran, uh, combat veteran. And he uh, he's doing veteran stuff today. This is this is Veterans Day, um, which is kind of interesting. We have two holidays for for military. We have Memorial. Oh, start again, Memorial Day. That's hard to say first thing in the morning. I mean, my job's not working yet. Anyway, so Memorial Day is where we honor our fallen soldiers Veterans' Day is where we honor all our soldiers. It's interesting we have two holidays for uh for military folks. not um, have to be a holiday someday for for you know citizen patriot warriors and you know people in the country that have uh you know made change i mean massive social change you know voting change uh civil rights change oh, we've got Martin Luther King Day, uh, but just uh, other crusaders along the way no, i'm not including me <laughs> I'm really not uh this is just uh, this is something i, I I'm doing because I kind of have to, you know, to, to quote the, to quote the Blues Brothers, I'm on a mission from God, <laughs> and so and I, I don't say that lightly, but I am, but I do kind of poke fun at a lot of stuff. So I want to do something a little different today because as everybody is going to be doing um, pretty much the standard, the same show, I never like to do that, and I want to remind everybody that Veterans Day, that's not where this holiday started. Where this holiday started. And why people remember this day, 11-11, uh, is because of 11-11-1918. That is the day that the guns stopped firing. That was the armistice in World War I. And so World War I changed the world. We talk a lot about World War II. World War II changed the world also. But there, there would not have been a World War II had there not been a World War I. And it's a, it's a fascinating study. There was a, a great special uh, series of uh, shows on the History Channel. You know, of, of World War I, you had this grim reaper with his big scythe, you know, doing this big, you know, sweep across the screen. But it's true. World War I took us from, from uh, many monarchies to, to many um, democracies. And, of course, they ended up being social democracies and almost socialist countries now. Um, things change. Uh, war changes things. Uh, millions of, of, of men died. Uh, women, too. But, I mean, the, the soldiers were men. And they uh, It was insanity. Uh, they 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 quickly went to trench warfare, uh, and in fact the United States got involved, and that was the reason that there was a win. You know, if the United States hadn't gotten involved, uh, which we should not have gotten involved in World War One, that was a huge mistake. What we should have done is, is sunk the German sh- sub submarines that were sinking our ships. So the the, the uh, you know our navy, you know the, 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 the American Navy is the, is a force that should have been out there, you know safeguarding ships all the way to England. So let them fight the war you know, and France fight the war against Germany and, and Russia was fighting, you know, against Germany. Everyone was fighting against Germany. Gee, we had an interesting repeat <laughs> just uh, some 20 years later. Um, but the thing is that because we entered, there was a winning side. Had we not entered World War I, I absolutely believe that it was stalemated. I mean, they were running out of men to kill. I don't say that, you know, sarcastically, but ironically, it simply was insane what the generals were doing. But the generals were from this, from this aristocratic class. They didn't care how many soldiers they killed. They didn't relate to them. They didn't understand them. They didn't know who they were. They didn't rise to the ranks from private up to general. They were born into it. It was an aristocracy military. So they didn't care how many millions of men died. It didn't matter to them. You know, they just wanted to win. Their, their egos, their egos were so big, they could uh, send uh, men on both sides. Both sides. You know, you look at the Western Front. The Eastern Front was a little different. I, I'm not really, I haven't really studied the Eastern Front in World War I. I haven't World War II. I mean, it was just a massive battleground. It was ten times bigger than the Western Front. So the real war in World War II, the, the land war in World War II, was between Germany and Russia, two leftist dictatorships—one Nazi and the other communist—and people forget that there were uh, that the the biggest wars are made by the leftists, you know, upon each other. Actually, it's kind of interesting as to who's going to be the the, the supreme leftist. Uh, well, they both lost hugely, uh, and both countries were devastated uh, in that process. But anyway, what's interesting is that um, that had you know, France and uh, Britain, you know, stalemated on the Western front with Germany, and they run out of people and run out of money and run out of uh, bullets and run out of everything else. The only alternative was just to stop fighting and go home. That would have been the best outcome. There probably would not have been a World War II. So the worst thing that, uh, the United States could have done, and probably our worst president, Woodrow Wilson, you know, the, the, the racist, elitist you know, white guy from uh, from Princeton University, former president of Princeton. This is what happens when you make a, an Ivy League college president as president of the United States. You get a horrible situation. I mean, you don't want to be run by academics. You don't want to be run by experts. You don't want to be run by technocrats. It'd be like making, uh, you know, Dr. Fascist president. Well, he thought he was for a while. But you, did you see what happens? When Dr. Fascist started taking over the White, the White House Coronavirus Task Force, for those who don't know, that's Dr. Anthony Fauci. I call him Dr. Fascist. Genocidal, psychopathic, avaricious, narcissistic, pathologically lying vaccine drug pusher. That's who he is. Now, imagine him being president. He thought he was. But imagine if he had the power of, uh, of the executive order with the mandates and the lockdowns. And I'll tell you, vaccines would have been mandatory. You'd have been lined up or, uh, and probably you know, put in a gulag you know, as far as he was concerned, if he didn't take the jab and make him rich. That's how bad it was. The ultimate corporate government fascist regime under Dr. Fascist. That's exactly what we would have had. Um, and so uh, that's what happens when, when the government, you know, runs everything. This is why you have to have a, the people have to run the government. And we're not, we don't have that right now because elections are stolen, but I digress. So back to uh, Woodrow Wilson and the insanity of sending troops to a European war when those countries were never going to invade us. There was no way Germany was going to send troops to the United States. It wasn't going to happen. Did they send submarines? Absolutely. So what do you do? You sink the submarines. So, so you have a limited war with Germany. So, look, we're going to sink your submarines. Your submarines cross this line. They're, they're you know, tin cans, okay? And you do that. Make, make the line, I don't know, or, or if you sink an American ship, uh, we're going to sink your submarine. That's it. Now, was Germany going to go much beyond that? No, because they were stuck in trench warfare fighting the British and the French. So the, the single thing for, for us, you know, the United States, would, would, would have been to stay out of it. See, if you didn't have a World War I winner, you wouldn't have had a World War I loser. If you didn't have a loser, you wouldn't have had reparations or the Treaty of Versailles. You wouldn't have the Treaty of Versailles. If you didn't have Versailles, you wouldn't have reparations. If you didn't have reparations, Germany wouldn't have been plunged into a massive depression. If you didn't have a massive depression, you wouldn't have Hitler. If you didn't have Hitler, you wouldn't have World War II. See all the problems Woodrow Wilson caused? <laughs> I mean, that's basically how it went. There was no excuse for World War II because World War I, we should never have been in. It's as simple as that. Uh, or if we had gone in, we should have gone in, you know, we should have taken volunteers. If, any, if, if Americans really wanted to serve the British and the French and, and run into uh, barbed wire and get shot with machine guns or blown up by artillery or gassed, if they really wanted to do that for what apparently was no reason uh, for our defense, then uh, they, they could have volunteered for other armies. Join the French Army, join the British Army, go for it. I'm not, you know, like, the, like Americans joined the Spanish you know, in uh, what they're calling a civil war of World War II, uh, which is interesting. So I think it was uh, the, the communists versus – well, I'm going to study the Spanish Civil War because I think it was communists versus, you know, the people, the, the usual situation. And so that's when the, the Nazis tested out all their weapons before World War II. So all the fighters and all the bombers uh, and the army and all the techniques that they used across Europe starting with Poland, going to Russia, all the way up through Norway, Sweden, Finland, um, you know all the countries except, except Switzerland because the Swiss actually had you know every civilian armed. Uh, that's what stopped the Germans. It wasn't that Switzerland was neutral. It said that all the Swiss were armed. okay Study that one sometime. Uh, it is fascinating. And so uh, um, just the way this worked out, but World War one changed the world. And so what happened after World War one, because it was such a devastating war that a lot of the world said, okay, we're going to set this as the aside as the, this, this was the war to end all wars. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. But World War One was the war to end all wars. The armistice, the day that uh, the shooting stopped, was 11 uh, 11 uh, of 1918. So on the 11th day of the 11th, the 11th hour, of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, hostilities ceased, and they did what they should have done. You know, at the first week of World War One, or, or certainly by Christmas, is just stop fighting and go home. Uh, they eventually did that. And that's what ended the war. And then, of course, you had the Treaty of Versailles and all the devastation that followed that. Um, but that's, that's how it happened. So the, the, so the rest of the world is celebrating Armistice Day today. Um, in Australia, when I was a kid, we, we used to uh, go to the memorial, the Anzac Memorial, the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, all the soldiers that died at Gallipoli fighting the Ottoman Empire, uh, which were the Turks, which ultimately was destroyed by World War I. There's another huge waste of a battle. And yet celebrated to this day. Uh, I don't know if there are any Anzac soldiers still alive. I doubt it. But uh, uh, the kids still are, you know, they're, they're now great-grandparents. Uh, but it's it's a fascinating study of World War One. Anyway, we've got Pianchi on the line. Let's talk about, uh, let's see what he has on us uh, on this for us. Because i got like four big articles. I'm not sure when I'm going to get to them because Derek's not here today. And Mike I haven't heard from, so Mike not be here either. Might not be here either. So we, we have a lot of time. And if not, I'll just do an extended hour because i got a lot to say on this topic. Pianchi, good morning, sir. What do you think on this Armistice Day? Hello, are you there? Pianki, your yeah. life, oh, there we go. Welcome back.
1: You know, I told you, Samsung uh, and Android done the an update, and when everything was all clear and done, I hardly recognized my phone anymore. Things so messed up.
0: Oh, okay. That's well, it, it sounds good. It, I just, it just, I don't know if there was a delay for you getting through the signal or anything like the that. Buttons. <laughs> the buttons. The buttons. <laughs> yeah, you gotta watch those updates. Because they don't ask your permission. Yeah, like I told you, they just they just do it. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah.
1: I thought I had uh, removed you from. You know how when you send a message out and you want to include people, well, it forms a group, and and you really don't want to form the group. You just want to send it out to certain people at one time rather than individuals one at a time.
0: Yeah. So I I thought I you out of this.
1: And yeah. after the, but after the update,
0: little that grant comes back again. Yeah, but I, yeah. the problem is there's no way to get out of the group. Uh, so my phone, I guess if it actually was a yeah. group, I could get out of it. But uh, I, don't, I don't tend to, uh, I don't have time for groups. I mean, I, you know, there's so much going on out there. This is why I do the show. I every, know, what you you know do. All you folks are welcome hear. to talk about it. No, it's okay. But uh, this is I say. People can talk about it yeah. in, in your groups. It's like people, I get like 30 to 50 videos a day. Got to watch this. I don't have time to watch those things. I really don't. I may I'll like select maybe yeah. one. You know, I just simply do not have time to do that. But that's why I have so many groups here at Action Radio. We've got 20 groups. We've got special investigations. We've got a legal project. We've got family law. We've got a homeschool project. We've got uh, the Action Radio group, our general news site. We've got 20 different groups, life and health coaching. You know, we've got the one of my favorite one now, special investigations. This is where people can join and post all your stories. That's the best place for it. That's why I created all these groups. That's a good idea yeah don't send them to me <laughs> yeah don't, but you not. know,
1: everybody everyone don't have the same uh likes and dislikes, but oh, World that's War true. one yeah, what do you know what he said I didn't study World War I as, as well as I did World war II.
0: yeah that's that's common that's very that's very common what um see, but I'll tell you the, the, one of the best things out there I mentioned this earlier in the show. there's a special on the History channel about World War one. Maybe they're going to sh- replay it today. That would be fabulous. But they really went into the details, and it was such – in many ways, World War I changed the world more than World War II did. Because in World War I uh, – I got an article on this earlier, but uh, uh, this is what I, I learned from, from the special – that the aristocracy – I mean, the, the, the aristocracies, the nobilities, and the monarchies, there were, there were monarchies. You know, Germany and, and uh, Russia and other places had either emperors or kings, and, uh, and they didn't after World War Two. after World War I. Um, the world, the, the, the whole, the World War I was the first mechanized war. So you've got generals. They always say that, you know how they say generals fight the last war? So the generals were still with cavalry charges and bright uniforms and sabers. Well, the military had already developed machine guns and barbed wire. Barbed wire was an American invention. Mm-hmm. It was a farm thing. It was a farm thing to keep cattle in. But barbed wire, the simple act of barbing wire held up soldiers. And of course, then they could be machine gunned by the thousands per day. It was a slaughter, and the insanity of World War One. The reason I find it so fascinating is the insanity of these generals who were the aristocrats who went to the our equivalent of like you know Phillips Exeter Academy. They went to the finest schools. They they went they associated with other elites. You know this is this was an elitist war, um, much more so than World War Two, where you had regular generals that came up through the ranks. World War One generals were born to be generals. They were they were they were. Uh, Aristocratically made generals, so they didn't care if they killed a thousand soldiers. You know, an hour it didn't matter to them because they, did, they didn't know these people. They weren't. Have you have
1: heard, heard, heard? of Bosch, right? Heard like Bosch, electronic,
0: German. Oh, uh, Bosch! Yeah, that was Bosch. used to be a that used to be a derogatory term for for Nazis. The Bosch, that's what the French called them. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, Bosch, and he had a partner, and I I know the names. Haber, Haber-Bosch. Haber-Bosch process is a process by which you make fertilizer using natural gas.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But also, I believe it was Haber that came up with the idea of mustard gas,
0: which they used in World War One. Yep. Yeah. It got the name mustard gas because it was a yellowing color. I believe that was a mixture of chlorine, bleach, and ammonia. You had an absolute acid and absolute base. This is why you see on on cleansers today, don't mix ammonia with bleach uh, because it creates a dangerous gas. Well, I think in a concentrated form, that's the basis of mustard gas, if I remember mm-hmm. my chemistry.
1: And, and not only, it, 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 you know, another warning, too, when you, at the bottom uh-huh. of your, uh, laboratory in the in your bathroom where people like to store their cleaning products you have to be careful with that too because the gases that come off those material can become spontaneous and you burn up your burn your house down <laughs> yeah
0: did you, you know that i did not know that oh that's it's uh in fact oh, i had, yeah, i, had I, had I had momentarily up, distracted uh, for a second uh, in fact, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to uh, – I hate to do this. I, I just got to send a quick uh, message came in that was kind of critical for the show. So let me just uh, zap that out. So what is it that can destroy your house again? My apologies to you.
1: Well, no, I just said that we were talking about the, the, the mustard gas and this right. creation, but also uh, storing different cleaning materials
2: mm-hmm.
1: in your laboratory in a enclosed space when they mm-hmm. start uh, breaking down they give off a of gas, which can become combustionable, and you have a spontaneous flame and burn your house down.
0: Yep. They say that uh, gasoline, um, when people drain gasoline tanks, that's actually more flammable because it's got the vapor, and the vapor is what combusts in your engine. So, so gasoline vapor, you know, you're almost safer leaving a gasoline tank full of fluid, which is not aerosolized, but when it becomes an aerosol, when it becomes a vapor, that's when it's the most combustible. So, uh, yeah, all this stuff's is yeah. interesting. Chemistry, this is just basic chemistry. But, you know, what I find interesting that of, of all the horrors of World War II, of the Holocaust, of all the horrible things that were done, of the new weapons, of the mechanization, of everything else that happened, they didn't use gas. So they were civilized enough not to use gas anymore like they did in World War I, which was a horrible, horrible, disgusting weapon. It was a bioweapon is what it was. And yet they did everything else. They, they were sensible enough not to use gas, but they were stupid enough to wage war anyway. That doesn't make any sense. That's irrational.
1: Well, the only place they would use gas probably was the flame drills. But you know, another uh, dangerous thing too: how people used to take fifty-five gallon drums
0: mm-hmm. and
1: cut them in half to make a fire pit, a barbecue pit, and
0: <laughs> yeah. the
1: fumes in there when it'll ignite and explode and kill everybody.
0: Oh, from the fumes from oh, but from the oil that was still there. Didn't they clean up the the barrels?
1: Well, you have to fill it with water, then cut it.
0: Oh, so, oh I see. So they're exploding when it's they were late. cut because of, of the sparks created. Yes. That's interesting. Here's another interesting thing, too. Steel, uh, uh, you know, the steel drums of the Caribbean, those steel drum bands? Those are, those are yeah. oil drums. Those are oil drums, oil barrels. That's where steel drums came from, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. I don't know. You may have known that. I, th- I don't know if everybody else knew that. Anyway, let's get back to World War 1. Uh we've got a little bit of time now. Shirley's going to join us in a bit. Uh she may have a shorter report today. Uh Derek's not here, so we have got plenty of time to talk about World War 1. I, I do not even the know Frank's showing coming up. in today. Mike, I don't know. Uh I, I you know, I didn't think to text people. I've been so busy with with crazy stuff uh in the show um that I I haven't uh you know, Mike, I don't know. I hope hopefully you will. I just assume everybody knows that we, we broadcast on holidays, even though the holiday is Monday. That's the, we're going to be here Monday too. Monday I might have a special veteran show or I might do uh, something else or I might do Ukraine money laundering. I haven't decided yet. Um, but um, I do broadcast on the holidays because the holidays to me are, are a time where we can actually highlight things we don't normally talk about. And so today I wanted to talk about World War I because people have forgotten it. And we don't even tell people that this was the end of World War I. We don't explain our involvement. We don't explain Woodrow Wilson. We don't explain how the United States changed, how we emerged as a world power. You know, after World War I, you know, and there's all these things that people don't consider that a lot of the reasons we are the way we are today as an imperial uh, power that people think of or that we have military bases all over the world um, and that we have, you know, try to have so much influence in world affairs. It started World War I. You know, people don't understand that the British took over the Middle East in World War I. And most of the problems we have in the Middle East are because the British took over the Middle East after World War I when the Ottoman Empire uh, was destroyed. So there's a lot of things to, to think about and cover.
1: Yeah, they understand we need to uh, maintain that hedge money. If not, then the things will drastically change.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I should it do the history well no, too. We, had, we should do yeah, a show ahead. on that
1: one time, too.
0: Um, we should um, do a
1: show on what the changes would be, what it would look like if the United States lose that, that hedge money. It has been, quote-unquote, number one in so many areas.
0: Well, um, I think we're seeing that now. I think we're seeing the rise of China, but we're not losing it because we can't do it. We're losing it because the government took over the government. The government chose the government, and the, gov- the person they chose is the most corrupt you know, government political mafia person probably in our history, um, you know, Joe Biden, who's the most on the take to China. So the biggest reason that China is rising is because we let them. You know, it's the same reason that the Democrats keep winning elections when they, uh, when they shouldn't. Uh, they cheat, and the Republicans let them. So we let China grow. Yeah, plus they share so
1: much, share so much knowledge with them. You know, if mm-hmm. you and I was just coming out of, a, out of the cage age, walking mm-hmm. into twenty uh, twenty two, mm-hmm. uh, and we wanted to build a car. Well, we wouldn't go back to the Flintstone, or rock tires and rims. We would start mm-hmm. off with the latest now and build off of it. And in the yep. only way we could acquire that, we would have to, you know, we would have to reverse the technology. And, uh, you know, you would have to steal. You'd have to steal some uh, information.
0: Well, I don't see why we don't steal stuff from China. I mean, you know, I mean, espionage is fair game. I mean, spying is what countries do. But in, in some ways, a lot of times, uh, we did take technology. Uh, I think there was, in World War II, there was uh, either a Messerschmitt Me262, the first jet fighter. I think one of those was captured when, the, when a, a pilot landed on the wrong airfield, landed in Switzerland instead of Germany. Um, there was, uh, I think, a Fokker Wolf. One of the new Fokker Wolf 190s uh, mistakenly landed in, in, uh, in the wrong place, and that was captured. Uh, there was a defector. I uh, remember the pilot who brought the MiG twenty five Foxbat, uh, Victor something. Yeah, other. I remember that. So he defected, right? Mm-hmm. So he brought a MiG twenty five, so we got all this Russian technology, so we could reverse engineer it. And what they really found out was was how you know patching the you know how how simple the Russian technology was, but it works very effective. You know, this you, you look at you can tell. The weapons, which is interesting, weapons really define a nation. You look at the M16 versus the AK47, uh, and that is that in itself is a fascinating study. Uh, the M16 was a, a, a select fire; it could be a single shot, it could be full auto. The real, ex, M, the old M16s, AK47 was the same thing; It could be single shot or full auto. But the M16 was tight tolerance; it was very precise; it was machined carefully. It jammed, <laughs> you know, they had to put a, a, a little rod in yeah, there to they do wouldn't. it. Um, they, they didn't chrome line the barrels. They, uh, um, I remember some famous general said, well, uh, you know, uh, McNamara uh, said we didn't have to clean it because the manufacturer didn't have cleaning in the manual, and they, so they didn't clean them at first, which was stupid. You always clean rifles, especially in wartime in the tropics, right? Now let's take the AK-47. The Russian um, Kalashnikov, or Kalashnikov was a Russian tank sergeant. And after World War, he was a tinkerer. He was a mechanic, right? So this guy's a mechanic. So he puts it together, and he makes it, you know, he makes the, the tolerances sloppy. He puts lots of room in there, you know, for stuff and mud, you know, and it, it, but it works. <laughs> Is it the most accurate? No. But in wartime, you know, you're close enough. You don't need the most accurate, you know, but you look at the philosophies of Russia. It's simple. It's effective. It works. We can make a, a gazillion of them. I could probably make, you know, 20 AK-47s for the price of one M16. So we have to spend billions of dollars. Not only that, uh, that AK-47
1: will melt down. You could fire, I'd say, probably 600, 800 rounds through a code automatic or automatic, and not semi. You could fire about 600, 800 rounds through it. And to the point where the stocks would actually catch on fire. Oh, yeah. that barrel would still be impeccable, Yes. Yeah,
0: you can still fire it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I've 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 heard stories of people throwing it in the mud and you know doing everything they can and open the bulb and you know throw stuff in. It still fires. AK forty seven. So it, worst comes to worst, you know, if you had a choice of an AK forty seven or a little old M sixteen, I think the AK forty seven simply because of the reliability.
1: It, it, even so, over AR fifteen too.
0: Um. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I I still I have yet to purchase my 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 quality AR-15, but I want to get one that I can clean properly because the barrel is too small. It's a 22 gauge uh, 22 caliber barrel. The two two three shell is a very small, small small bullet. So to get a cleaning rod to actually clean that thing properly, I don't know how you clean the gas tube. I don't even think you do. I don't know if you just replace it or just leave it. But I still have to uh, you know understand AR-15 mechanics. But AK-47, hey, just take it apart. It's like five parts. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the simplest thing in the world. You know, that's why well I like Glocks, because they're so simple. But what do you think of of, of the weapons of, of, of World War One? The airplane came into its own. Uh, submarines and torpedoes yeah, was, came into their own. It was a fascinating development. Dropping bombs down
1: on people. Yeah. A, the tangent amount of uh, a bottle of uh, a cocktail. And, mm-hmm. and the trench warfare. Yeah. So the trench warfare, the uses of horses still. Mm-hmm. And it was a diverse usage of Resources that
0: war was. Well, think but about the trench general.
1: warfare was horrible. Yeah.
0: Oh, oh yeah, and I've studied trench warfare. I mean, it was the disease and everything. else. And of course, the Spanish flu came right after it, after the wars, that was pretty, uh, pretty devastating too. But, the, but, the, the but I think of the psychology. So here's what I can't understand about World War One. The generals, again, the aristocratic class, the people that never associated with the common people, uh, they sent soldiers night after night after night with bayonet charges into known barbed wire and artillery and and machine gun fire, and they were slaughtered. And so the British would send their troops in, and they get slaughtered by the Germans. The Germans would send their troops in, they get slaughtered by the British. The French would send their troops in, and the same thing would happen. You know, they get slaughtered by the Germans, the Germans would, would get slaughtered by the French. And the generals, the same generals on both sides were doing the same thing for four years. This is insanity. You know, uh, why didn't, you know, especially when Germany was losing, you know, uh, this is why it would say with the worst possible thing was the United States entering the war, we should never have been there. We, should ne- we had no business, no business sending troops into that war and causing a winner. It was the worst possible thing to happen. Uh, you know, the best thing that would have happened if one of the nations with it's just one leader had said, stop, stop this nonsense. Just stop the fighting and go home. Let's start talking. And they could have done that in 1914, 1915, 1916, 1917. They didn't do it until 1918. This thing went on for four years. And it was just, it's irrational. It's the most irrational war, but it changed so much. The, the maps changed. Everything changed. The Middle East changed. Warfare changed. Technology changed. We had torpedoes. We had airplanes. For the first time, civilians were fair game. I mean, there were German Zeppelins and, and Gotha bombers bombing uh, London. And we had the the Handley Page bombers bombing Germany. I'm not sure. uh, I don't know about World War One bombing campaigns. World War Two, of course, was the same thing. But World War One made it acceptable to bomb civilians. That never happened in warfare. Usually, it was the combatants. You know, the brave men would come back and tell their tales of glory, which of course weren't. But the, you know, remember this. Remember how we do the show on Memorial Day with poetry, uh, the combat of uh, uh, combat soldier poetry, and we compare the the charge of the Light Brigade. Into the Valley of Death rode the the 600. How bravely they died for their country! It Wasn't that glorious? And then you have real warfare. You know, uh, Flanders Fields. You know, the the ball turret. Um, that that's one of uh, the poet the uh, poem from World War Two, talking about the, the turret gunner in a B 17. You know, and when they came back, was, you know. That
1: was, that was a definitely
0: there. Yeah, ball turret. Yeah, and yeah, the last line. Guns. And the last line is they washed his body out with a hose. You know, it, 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 you know, and it's, a, these are devastating poems. That's why I do that. I'm a Memorial day. I will continue to do that. I'm a Better day. Veterans, I haven't decided. It seems to me to have two holidays. Um, and this is right before Shirley gets here. I have a contention that's going to be controversial, but I think no disrespect to the military, the, the, the people that died, gave their lives. I, you know, absolutely honor them. Um, but I think as an ideology, we, we limit our discussion of freedom by limiting it to, to the military, saying that, uh, You know, freedom. When we say fighting for freedom, people naturally assume that means the military and that means, you know, fighting in foreign countries. I don't believe that Iraq or Afghanistan or Korea or Vietnam or Bosnia or any of the places that we've been were fighting for our freedom because our freedom was taken away every time we went over there and we lost our our money and millions of dollars. We lost our people. So the real fight for freedom is right here. You know, with patriots, with the Tea Party, with us, with anybody who's, who's a, an activist that tries to limit the powers of government, that's the fight for freedom. And as much as I honor the soldiers, I think, uh, you know, the movement gets left out and that we need to expand the definition of fighting for freedom because a lot of people are fighting for freedom. Martin Luther King fought for freedom. You know, uh, the, the folks that uh, fought for women to have the vote fought for freedom. And neither one of them were soldiers. So we, we we distort the fight for freedom by limiting our definition only to combat. I think.
1: Well, sometimes you're going to have to resort to combat. I
0: mean, you look oh, at I'm things. Not, oh, now, okay, I'm not saying that. You know, yeah, sometimes you have to fight yeah. for freedom. You know, I mean, the the war for independence, the war of 1812. You know, World War One was you're definitely right. we you had, know, to, you had to sink German subs. Yeah, we definitely have to fight for our freedom with military.
1: Yeah, peaceful protest by way of petition,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and. Uh, compromise really and that don't yeah. work then you're gonna have to resort to the physical
0: but what i'm saying is the military isn't the only way to fight that's not the only fight for freedom and that's the part that i well, think gets this left is what out
1: I said the, the the other three first first you petition right you know first you protest signs and marches and stuff like that then you your petition which basic is petition the government and then you sit down. You you do some talking. You try to compromise. But sometimes the other side just uh, they would uh, smell your weakness and try to get more out of you, if not to destroy you, without firing a shot.
2: Well, I know so that's. When, I mean, the,
0: the, that's I'm when a the firm believer in a strong military. I'm not saying I had to have a strong military. I'm saying we need to pick our battles better. Listen, we've got Shirley on the line. I want to ask her opinion of this. We've got her for a whole hour, I think, which is great. Uh, Unfortunately, we've lost Jim Dykes, who has completely disappeared, uh, immersed in in, uh, stuff that he has to do, which is too bad. I, I really miss him on the show here, but let's get to Shirley and see what she thinks of all this. When one is faced with a crisis, you find your true character. How you react to such an emergency can determine the rest of your life. Two paths present themselves for you to choose. One leads to tragedy. The other leads to becoming a new person. Shirley Wattrell, a survivor of a dangerously abusive relationship, is that new person. She's the author of Heels to Holster. She is a firearms instructor motivational speaker, women's empowerment advocate, and a reporter for Action Radio. So now, here is the DC Project Women and Guns with Shirley Wattrell. Shirley fights for freedom all the time, not as a combat soldier, but with DC Project for our rights and teaching people how to use guns properly. It's fabulous. Hey, Shirley, how you doing?
3: I'm fine. How are you?
0: Well, we're having an interesting time. I have, a, as usual, a slightly different topic, and so uh, I'm glad that uh, you're able to actually uh, you know, do a whole hour um, with us. You know, We've got Derek Parks out, but uh, I'm curious um, what, uh, what your impressions are. I know you probably don't have a big chance to think about it because I, I really put the show on you know, this morning, uh, even though I've been thinking about it for the last few days. World War I. Did you learn about that in school? Did do, have you ever thought about that in, in terms of, of history? Um, or I think, like a lot of folks, it just it just kind of gets glossed over because it was a long time ago, I don't know, it was hundred years ago. Um, but do you have any impressions on that and how that changed us? Just curious. Then we can get to all your stuff.
3: Okay. Um, well. Simple
0: question, right? Simple uh, yeah, question did. for a Friday morning. We-
3: <laughs> We Yeah, we, we, did, we covered it in school. I, I don't know that they do it now, but definitely we did cover it in school. And since it's been a few years, I'd have to do a refresher course on it because it's not something that's talked about uh, regularly. It's not mm-hmm. something that actually, if you think about it, our history isn't talked about in the media at all. Um, it's not brought up as to, you know, a remembrance, uh, like, Veterans Day today. We should be remembering Mm -hmm. our veterans. And I want to start by thanking all our veterans, both men and women who have served, who have paid the ultimate price as well, and to help keep America free. And it's very important that we note that. And I think that's getting lost as well as some other um, of our traditions. Traditions seem to be going by the wayside. And that's one of the things I wasn't supposed to be on the show today. Actually, I was supposed to be in the keys at the offshore boat races. Oh,
0: I'm sorry. What um, what happened? <laughs> so, so you know the boat races? That's right. I, and I didn't even note that in my calendar. I must have I must have slipped along the way. Uh, my apologies for that too. But uh, so so what were you supposed to do? And uh, first of all, I'm glad you're here. But uh, what happened? W- weren't you going to be like sitting on a boat at 100 miles an hour across the water?
3: No, no, no. DC project was. We had a table there.
0: We had, were set up with the table. And hey, we, we had to a take couple of boat ride? For, you don't get the helmet and the, the whole bit, the visor, and
3: uh, you know, feel I the need for speed that. and all that kind of stuff? No,
0: that's not yeah. fun. What about getting a table if you can't get yeah. a
3: Yeah, If you really want that effect, you just wait for a hurricane to hit Florida and you'll feel the same thing probably still. Well, that's true, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So you can sit in a boat facing a hurricane and get that same wind in your face? Is that what you're on a mile an hour wind? That's interesting. Yeah. That's, just, that's funny.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah. What are you it's doing? I'm experiencing way, a boat race. Yeah, okay. It's like a wind tunnel. All yeah,
3: right. Yeah. Just put a helmet on and sit outside. 100-mile-an-hour wind's
0: coming in. In your yeah. boat. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All
3: right.
0: Well, it. you don't even see, have to see. be in a
3: boat. Just be sitting outside by the beach.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. Just sit down the but... beach where you where your boating outfit with your helmet and just have a little steering wheel in your hands and go, yep, I'm in a boat. Yeah. Here comes exactly. the water.
3: Exactly. Speedboat. Oh. Fast
0: motorboat. At that.
3: Yeah, yeah. so um, due to the weather that was coming in, I, I, they did have it. Uh, just the DC project I made the call that we were going to be flying into a, an island oh. where she, I was going to be driving <clears throat> with the unknowns of what the weather was going to do but the weather did turn, it went further north and I mm. saw those folks in Daytona Beach and on the east coast, they they got hit bad saw some pictures, it's it's bad Was there
0: overlap with Ian? There was so much overlap? Because that's more your area than mine, we're up on the panhandle here Was there Ian overlap? Did people get hit twice? With this new one?
3: Um so, Yeah, some some of them on the East Coast, because when Ian went out, he they did a lot of damage. And then this one took out seawalls, and there's houses that just collapsed wow. because the sand's gone. Not sand, but the ground's gone. And, yeah, wow. there's a lot of hotels as well. Condos, hotels, wow. houses are no longer safe to live in. Uh, wow. I just saw pictures of it. I didn't realize how bad. Because the storm, the Category one didn't sound bad, but after being weakened with Ian, it kind of hit him hard. Uh, oh. Over here, though, we were lucky it hit further north, so we just got some wind and rain. Uh, but anyway, that's where I was supposed to be. Oh, well, okay. originally I was supposed to be in Texas. <laughs> I oh, have, wow. I had a lot of supposed to be. You, you yeah, the places you were to supposed to
0: be? Yes. The, yeah. Yes, I like, at
3: home talking to you. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, it could be worse. Um, this is fun. You know, yeah. you're a radio star. But yeah, you know, so uh, things are happening.
3: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Originally, I was supposed to be at the USCCA Expo in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were in the Fort Worth area, DC Project is there. Booth 106, if you want to stop by, they're also having a drawing. You could actually win a Ruger 1911. So if is you're anybody there not you could call?
0: Area. Can you text those folks to, to anybody there at the table? They can call in now, or is it, it was far too early there?
3: No, that's too early. It's
0: like oh, we'll coordinate for next time. If you want to do that, if you have uh, DC Project uh, tables at different conferences and things like that, and somebody at the table can call—if you can't be there—if someone at the table can call us during the time you're on the show, that'd be great. So that, put that as a, another yeah, idea.
3: Normally, the tables aren't open at 7:30 in the morning.
2: Most cases, oh. if
3: anything is at, at 7:30 in the morning, you're doing setup, so that you're a busy time. But oh. um, yeah, so. If anyone's in the area, please stop by, say hi to them, tell them, tell them I said hi. <laughs> I wish I was there. And yeah, if you're, if you're listening, call us ticket...
0: at 215-383-3832. <laughs> go ahead, Julie.
3: Yeah. And if you're interested in buying the ticket and you're not in the area, you can go to dcproject.info. Um, but you were talking about World War One, and kind of because I was trying to figure out what I was going to talk about because I really wasn't going to be on the show, and then I was going to be on the show. And I remember years ago. And it kind of ties into what you're saying, which is kind of interesting, and we hadn't even mm-hmm. talked about it. Yeah. Um, years ago, when I was growing up, they'd be giving out poppies, artificial little poppies, the flower.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. I did Old that red too red when I was a kid in Canada. in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, this is interesting.
3: You don't see that much anymore. We do have our American Legion. We do have a, a woman and her husband. He's a veteran. They I saw on Facebook that they're preparing them, so they're going to be giving them out. Probably at different locations, but that's one of the traditions that kind of has gotten lost, I think, in the wayside. And yeah. that tradition was a way of paying, um, telling thanks to to the to the military that not only served, some of them gave their lives. They, I didn't know this. I thought it was just it was the poppies were given out both at Memorial Day and Veterans Day.
2: Uh, it's what it's old the Armistice Army. Day.
3: In yeah. fact, yeah, and that was the other thing that used to be called, what? why did it change?
0: Armistice Day. Well, that's and what now, I wanted to do. We that- well, we don't, we're the only country that calls it Veterans Day. The rest of the world calls it Armistice Day. So this is this is what I remember from growing up in Canada and Australia. Now in Canada, we, we had the poppies, you know, and I've forgotten exactly the significance of why it was. Uh, it may have come from a poem I just pulled up, In Flanders Fields by uh, John McCrae. It, it's one of the most famous poems it, from World War One. Go ahead.
3: It did. See, this is all tying in when I was listening to you, because I just I actually almost forgot to dial in. So I'm listening. Well, it, this is all tying in and I thought I'd get some more information. But yeah, yeah. so the red coffee find? became a national it's, it's a national symbol of sacrifice and oh, it's worldwide. It's not just here in America. And, you know, there's the other countries, they do that. they I don't know if they still do, though. It'd be interesting to know if they held up the tradition. Probably Canada, Australia.
0: Being British, Commonwealth countries, Canada and Australia had so many soldiers. They had soldiers there from the beginning. Canadian, British, and Australian soldiers were there at the beginning. And in Australia, I remember, we had the Anzacs, the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. These are the folks, you've ever saw the movie Gallipoli, Mel Gibson and another Australian actor. Um, that was one of the greatest defeats in history. There was no reason for it. The British were commanding Australian troops. They screwed up. They bombarded the beach to uh, keep the heads down of the, of the Turks and the Ottomans you know, from uh, you know, massacring the Australians when they landed on the beach. Well, the bombardment ended you know, like an hour before, and then the soldiers were still told to, to take the beach. And the Australian commanders like, no, we can't do this. It's this crazy. The bombardment stopped. All the, all the Turks were back in the machine gun nest. And, of course, the Australians and the New Zealanders died by the, by the, the thousands. Uh, and yet they, that they celebrated that as a great event it was to show how brave you know, the soldiers were. They weren't brave. It was stupid. There's no reason for it. It's a total waste in war, and yet that's the the big event that a lot of folks remember. Uh, it's even called Anzac Day. Uh, it's a day of Gallipoli. So uh, I was very much um, informed about World War One from, from not so much Canada but especially Australia. And here, because our involvement was so late, we don't we don't consider it as much. But do you know why the change? Why how it became Veterans Day from Armistice Day?
3: No, I do not.
0: Okay. Well, what did you couldn't... find? Out? I'm, I'm I'm curious what you did find about about the poppies and things. Well,
3: what well, well, we did find out, and it ha- it's a Canadian Lieutenant Colonel McRae. Yep. Um, he, remember him? We probably already talked about him on the show. I don't know. I, I
2: not yet.
0: Start usually, we do language. Memorial Day. Yeah, we, we we do Memorial Day reading of of poetry written in combat. I always read in Flanders Fields. Uh, that's just one of the, the 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 most important poems of the war, of any war.
3: Well, that 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 poem. Was inspired by the poppy. Um, in in Flounder's field, the surgeon, who's you know firsthand, he, he's seeing all the the death and the carnage from the war. He mm-hmm. sees these red blossoms coming up through the the dirt that you know been destroyed, and that's what inspired the the poppies. And and it says it it defines in Flounders. Flanders field in which he channeled the voice of fallen soldiers buried under the under those hardy poppies because huh. of these poppies popping up in this field. If I remember right, I read somewhere where it's in Belgium, somewhere the, this field is where they figured that when all of the destruction and the lime from the buildings and everything else in that area and as well as the trees and everything started bringing up Proper proper soil for these poppies to grow, and that's how they came up, and that's how the poem started, based on what he saw in the middle of uh, middle of battle and destruction and and every, and bloodshed right there on the as him being a surgeon.
0: Yeah, life, ah, life. Uh, yeah. Well, here's the poem. It's called In Flanders Fields. It's by John McCrae. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid the guns below we are the dead short days ago we lived felt dawn saw sunset glow loved and were loved and now we lie in Flanders fields take up our quarrel with the foe to you from falling hands we throw the torch be yours to hold it high if ye break faith with us who die we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. Wow. <laughs> I, exactly. I, I, every time I read that, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty devastating. But it's interesting that uh, the, the poppy, something really beautiful, comes up literally on top of, of, of the corpses of, of thousands upon thousands of dead soldiers. And that's why World War I is so critical to study. And I talked about this with Pianchi earlier, but I'm I'm curious your perspective of just the total waste of humanity uh, of these aristocratic nobility generals sending wave after wave, day after day, month after month, year after year of soldiers with bayonets to charge barbed wire and run into machine gun fire. I mean, after the first time, wouldn't you go, this this isn't working. Let's try something different. But they didn't. They buried They got in the trenches and they ran into the same barbed wire and same machine gun fire and the same artillery for four friggin' years. That, to me, is irrational. Why didn't, there wasn't one single world war leader, including our own, Woodrow Wilson, that said, stop this nonsense. Stop this fighting. Come to the negotiating table. This is all you're doing is killing your entire youth. And uh, Europe lost a generation of, of men. Uh, France, Russia, Germany, uh, England lost millions of young men to trench warfare. Along, I mean, the 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 field advance, the 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 Western Front. If you ever read uh, Eric Murray remarks, uh, "All Quiet on the Western Front," there's another one, this is German perspective of World War One. But the the trenches, the the battle on the Western Front never really advanced more than a few hundred yards in any direction. They stalemated there for four years, and yet they continued this insanity. I don't. I just find it. Well, you
1: just, know, based on the ahead, yeah, the yeah. knowledge that they had. It's easy to look back in the time and, and look and see what something that person done wrong. You know, we do that whenever Bill and laps. But no, they knew the, the time, information though. the information that they had at the time, based on what how wars and fights and battles were fought behind them, uh, mm-hmm. it was based on I got you got a million, I got a million and a ten. So I should win in the end. I mean, even in Africa they've done the same thing, they just uh assembled people body after body after body and they laid charges
2: yeah I've
0: there got no a, i no knowledge
1: about modern technology
0: now i got an article uh, that i think it counters that a little bit that there's a lot of mutinies a lot of soldiers rebelled and they don't talk about that something i need to investigate further is how many soldiers said no i'm not going to run into machine gun fire and die for no reason um uh, so that'd be very curious too shirley what do you think i'm curious
3: well when you were when you were talking about being um equipment wise being out battled when going into war and everything the first thing that uh-huh. modernized that was the um the story the horse soldiers
2: uh-huh. when they
3: when when they went against tanks and um uh, missiles and everything else but they were calling in the bombers from the united states um, I thought that that's the first thing I thought of. So sometimes I guess, um, but what you're saying, if you continually do it, but they had strategic reasoning for it, so they could call in the bombers. To uh, I think you're talking you World War
0: II. I think I think you're getting the no, World War II. No, I'm not, I'm there.
3: talking modernized. You know, oh, modernized. Iraq.
0: Okay. Oh, I see. Okay, well, I'm sorry. I, missed, the I misunderstood. Yeah, mm-hmm. The movie Twelve
3: Strong. Yeah, the movie Twelve Strong for soldiers. Twelve horse soldiers. It's called the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I thought of it the first thing because you know sometimes. You have to go with what you can, what's available to you, uh, yes. and also what terrain. Because in the in the this, that battle, they could only take courses through the the land. So uh, I'm not I'm not a historian. I don't know how, about all the battles. Uh-huh.
0: Um, no, I'm still but, interested in your impressions anyway, yeah, they're, just they're, because they're, uh, just to your opinion for what you do or, or have not been exposed to. But that that still that still is is is, cur- is curious for me.
3: Yeah, so anyway, that, yeah, that was it. Okay. Um, well, you know something they didn't
1: have back then?
0: Go ahead, Bianca, and then we'll get to the They didn't have plywood. You
1: had a sheet of plywood that just laid on the barbed wire and walked across. So plywood
0: had not been invented yet. Well, that's interesting. And they could have cut the wires too, but you're still exposed to machine gun fire. So you had this combination of, of – uh, it's the two of them together. Machine gun fire you can avoid by simply not being there. Uh, barbed wire you can avoid by not getting caught in it, but if you have to go through the barbed wire to get to the enemy and the barbed wire holds you up, that's what that was. What uh, stopped all the all those bayonet charges? They never said it, bayonet charges or even cavalry. There's no cavalry charges in World War One. It's crazy. Anyway, let's surely let's get to your report. Otherwise, we're. Uh, I'm going to. I I know Derek's not here and I'm. I'm feeling Mike might not be checking in either. But just in case, I've got tons of articles. So we have lots of things to cover here. Uh, so go ahead. What did, What did you find this week? Even though you weren't supposed to be here. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, I'm going to also just add on to when we're talking about the, the poppies and other countries that are doing it. There mm-hmm. was the United Kingdom, Canada, France, Belgium, Australia, and New Zealand. They still uh, honor with the memorial of the
0: poppies. Belgium is Yeah, because Belgium was so involved in World War One because Flanders Fields, I didn't know, I'd forgotten that Flanders Fields was in Belgium. But, um, yeah. yeah, Belgium was was very much involved in World War One. We don't think about that too much.
2: So
3: this, just to finish that off, and maybe between now and when I get off the show here, I'll figure out why we went from Armistice Day to Veterans Day. Yeah, I mean, sure there's an involved. article on
0: it. I, I, just, I was looking up all kinds of other stuff, like uh, the creation of Palestine and uh, U.S. involvement and how the world changed after World War I. I've got about five articles. Uh, that's one I had not uh, had not done. I just know that we did change. I uh, am wondering if it's because our involvement was less, or because they want to, you know, change the history and not have people relate. Uh, Veterans Day to Armistice uh, Day. It, I'm yeah. not sure. I, what do you think?
3: I did. I, I did a quick look, and it just says, "Oh, it was passed by Congress." I haven't found out the why. I've asked the why, and so far, I haven't found oh. anything else. So maybe before the end of the show, we'll figure out the why of do it. But, do you know
0: when? Do you know when it was changed? Did yes, they say when I it was do.
3: changed? Okay. Yes, they do. Huh. <laughs> June 1st, 1954. I had to look real quick. Okay, <laughs> now that's interesting. So
0: that's so, that, no, so the if, if they change?
3: 1938.
0: Uh, sorry, say that again. I interrupted. June 1st,
3: 1954, Congress amended the Act of 1938, officially renaming Armistice Day as Veterans Day.
0: So it was Armistice Day in 1938. Okay, so that's interesting. That's oh, the Depression. Okay.
3: I needed to read a little further.
0: Okay. Oh, please do. Thereby
3: ex- expanding the recognition of the holiday to include veterans of all American wars.
0: Well, so we, apparently do is... Day. we do We already do that. This is why I'm, con- I'm confused why we have two holidays.
3: Well, one's in memory of and one's just in your service as well as memory of. Isn't that the difference in the two? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, e-
0: exactly, but... Uh... You know, we don't even have a holiday for our president anymore. We don't have a holiday for our, any of our founders. We don't have, uh, there's a lot of holidays we don't have, and, and nothing is military. I'm not I'm not trying to, I'm just questioning um, the idea of having two holidays, one for the fallen soldiers and, and one for all the soldiers. You know, call me, you know, insensitive, but I think we could do that, and uh, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm just exploring an idea, but it seems to me interesting that we have two holidays uh, for our military, uh, and they're two totally different things, which... Maybe elderly celebrate on the same day, but in transferring it to uh, uh, from Armistice Day, which was the end of World War I, which we were involved with and totally changed as a nation uh, to then, you know, call it Veterans Day. I think they're trying to hide, either try to hide what we did in World War I. Uh, and it's, they, they, they're saying it's inclusive. But look at the times when these happened. So 1938, right? Hitler's rising in Germany. Uh, it's, World War I was 20 years before that, 2018. Yeah, so World War Two, World War I ended about 20 years earlier. That we created Armistice Day. I think the rest of the world had Armistice Day from probably 1919. You know, I think the the British and Canadians and Australians, New Zealanders, uh, and even the Belgians had much earlier. But what happened in you know if you if you know if you look at the history 1954, uh, what was going on between 1950 and 1953? A little trivia question for you. Uh, I
2: don't know.
0: The Korean War. Don't know. The Korean War. I just find it interesting that 1954, Korean War, so Armistice Day Which wasn't a war
1: for the United States. The United States was helping South Korea, really.
0: Well, it's actually a U.N. police action. That was the first globalist war because it wasn't even declared. I just find this all interesting. So we have an undeclared war for three years in Korea, which has never been resolved. They're still stalemated along the 38th parallel. They pick a a degree of latitude as as the, the difference between North and South Korea. North and South Korea were split. Are you ready? 1945. What else happened in 1945? Boom, boom. Come on, folks. World War II ended. Right? The atomic bomb, August 6th and August 9th. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we end World War II. What else happened in 1945? Come on, globalists. <laughs> I'm not trying to test you. I'm just, I just find this interesting. The United Nations was created. So the United Nations created in 1945. Uh, 1945, Korea was split into North and South in 1945. We're at war in Korea in 1950 to 1953. 1954, we're changed to uh, Armistice Day becomes Veterans Day. What else happened in 1954? Major occurrence in the world in terms of countries. Vietnam was split into North and South, creating the, uh, the stage for the Vietnam War starting what 1960 1958 maybe when uh... the french were there and then and eisenhower brought us in i just find this interesting it's an interesting timeline yeah in
1: 2024 and, you know I mean, it's gonna be split
0: oh okay what's what's your what's your uh... forecast and then uh, i'm curious surely's reaction
1: uh, you see Probably how no. things are going
0: okay so what are we splitting into
1: you you splitting it in those who say hell no and then those say we want you to change.
0: So Marxist in America first? Is that how you see it going? Yes. Okay. Hopefully we can prevent that at Action Radio with uh, offering an alternative to ballots and bullets, and that would be bills, that would be citizen legislation, to change the laws so they can't do it. That's what I'm hoping for. I know it's a lot to ask, and I know it's kind of arrogant to say that, but that's why I created this. You know, so that we could have an option well, beyond be bullets and ballots.
1: The U.S. military won't be drawn into it because it's, it's Americans fighting each other. And uh, that's what's going Well, gonna soldiers happen.
0: are going to have to choose whether they're going to fight for the, the Marxist oppressive federal government or whether they're going to fight for the people. They're going to have to make a choice. Shirley, how do you see this coming out it's, it's an interesting question. Same type of choice as Robert E. Lee made. Okay. Yeah, it is. To go with the Confederacy, which was the Democrat Party, folks, for those that forgot. Um or with the Union, which is the Republican party under Lincoln, Shirley, let's get you in this <laughs> uh, if you want to forecast a bit into the future
3: uh, yeah something's gonna something's eventually gonna give
0: something's gonna
3: okay. i mean you can't you can't just keep uh, pitting one person one party person against another. Um, There's just certain people that want division, and if they keep doing that, then something is going. Some people are going to just say enough is enough. And it's kind of like what went through, you know, originally. You know, enough is enough. We didn't want to pay the, you know, with the, the British mm-hmm. and stuff. But anyway, and it
1: can't be. Yeah. A, it can't be just a line drawn. It has to be a pushback. Because if you started off and you pushed, and all of a sudden you said, "Well, I'm gonna stop right here," no, you have to push back and even take some territory.
0: Hmm. Let me ask you one more question. That's that's the completely different, Shirley. Um, do you think women should be drafted for combat?
3: Well, we kind of we kind of discussed this before. Women have been in the. At, in the battlefield since the Revolutionary War since mm-hmm. 1775, you know, they, they did other things. Those were the ones that fought alongside husbands or dressed up as men so they could fight. Right. Uh, they did other things. They were nurses and seamstress and cooks and everything else. And also through, all through history, women have been a very vital part of, of the wars. You know, you m- might not hear a lot about them, but they've been out there, just like in World War One, and since we were talking about that, I did a quick look up on that oh
2: please do. Um, tell me
3: 25,000 25, women between the ages of twenty one and sixty nine were involved in world war one Wow um, a large number of them were nurses. they did administrative stuff, secretaries stuff like that um, but that's that's what it started according to history. <laughs> 'Cause like I it totally said, makes sense, I'd
0: to... and I, I'd forgotten that we talked about it before, so thanks for, for reminding me, but uh, it's just, it, it, it's an interesting thing that as we talk about war, and, and you know, uh, there there was a draft in World War One, there was a draft in World War II, uh, they probably needed it for, I don't think they needed it in really the case for enough volunteers to go, but uh, the question becomes, in our in our modern age, you know, we still have selective service, you know, we still have men registering at 18, Um which I think is is wrong if it's only men, uh, but on the other hand, you know, you could be drafted, but you don't have to be drafted necessarily for a combat position because most of the military is not is non combat. So ninety percent non combat, only about ten percent uh, of people in the military are actually you know fighting uh, an enemy, you know, with bullets flying the whole bit. So it's 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 an interesting question. Well, so Gutpiak and then we we'll get to Shirley's report. We've been uh, the, the <laughs>
1: we've been technology. World War here the a line, technology you know? today, yeah, the okay. technology today permit women to be involved more on the front than it is than they were in the back back in those days. Yeah. Also, they really believe it, women nowadays got more footballs than men. What are you talking about? Well, they got more courage from the scrotum. <laughs> I mean, you know why we should say males ain't got no balls? Well, they've been neutered. Well, that's so true. you have that's- women today that's taking on a role – that you would suspect that uh, a male would take on. Well,
2: it that we question. have
1: such a disproportionate number of of, of of women at the head of things, they have
0: not been neutered like the male has. Well, no, but we got to, well, here's a cultural question, too, because it seems to me that the whole toxic masculinity, we take any young boy in school who shows independence, shows energy, a little bit disruptive, a little bit creative, a little bit, uh, you know, questioning, in other words, me. <laughs> You know, when I was in school, uh, I would have been the first one drugged with Ritalin. You know, if I was in school today, uh, but we, we we reward women for being independent and uh, and getting out there and doing things and starting companies. But guys, you know, if the, if guys are what guys are, then all of a sudden it's toxic, and that's a that's a danger. You cannot take half the population uh, and uh, make them toxic for for being who they are. It's not going to work out well for this country. Shirley.
3: No, you're absolutely right. And if we come down to the draft, you're going to have to define men and women. Is there a definition? Is there a difference anymore?
2: Men well, become women,
3: women become women. Become, you know, men become yeah. women, women become men. It's just, it's just mm-hmm. a big mess, if you ask me. But that's my personal Damn. opinion. It has nothing to do with DC Project or anything else. Um, sure. But, yes, um, <laughs> the defining men and women is it's become so muddled with craziness. Uh, and it's, it, you're right. You know, men standing up probably are going to be called. Maybe they'll be called more like a bully, and women standing up for themselves are going to be called bitchy. You know, it's it's just
0: or empowered, depending things. on who's saying it. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So it, it. I think it's just important that that we just start respecting each other. Yeah. And makes sense. And not being hostile. There's a difference between standing up for yourself and being mean and hostile and physically abusive. Totally different things,
2: That's and
3: sure. as you can see in the way politics goes, sometimes when the when the divide comes and the, the what they call the oppressed are, are more physically violent, you know, so it's just I don't understand. The world's going a little bit wacko
2: <laughs> right now. Yeah, it is. Not, well, well I mean, maybe the world, our
3: country is kind of, and then not being able to. I don't, we're not going to go in the election. You probably cover that a million times. Oh, we did, But, but you not being able... your
0: opinion on the election. Let's get your, your report stuff, <laughs> well, and then no, whatever I mean, time we have left, we can – uh, what's that?
3: I can't believe you can't get the ballots counted. What's it been, three days now? I mean, well, I can. I, I work for them. Well
2: – They don't.
3: Whatever, whatever reason, they're not
0: – Oh, they're cheating.
3: <laughs> anyway, we're
0: not – <laughs> is the reason. Anywhere. They're cheating. They need the time to cheat. Okay. This is a Yeah. Um, Just a quick digression here. Tucker Carlson had a report last night where he was talking about uh, the Republican elections that were overturned in 2018. There were four of them in California. There was one in Nevada and one somewhere else. But what he failed to mention was that overturning of those votes when the the mail-in ballots showed up after the election was over, like two weeks after the election was over. All of a sudden, these ballots showed up and the the Republicans allowed the Democrats to overturn their seats, make them Democrat seats. Democrats took uh, control of Congress in 2018 when they did not win. And that's when all the impeachments and everything else happened. So this is why I call them the geldings, the gelding old party. They have no balls, none. They won't stand up for themselves at all, except for the younger folks who are coming to Congress now. Anyway, that's a little digression, but uh, we can talk elections later. So let's, let's – okay, I, I promise I'll be quiet now. Shirley, tell me your report. <laughs> what do you have of it on this short notice?
3: Okay, so – uh, well, we'll get we'll get to so those people that don't know the DC project, we're going to hit some DC project stuff right now. Kind of talked about the events that we have are doing this weekend, um, but DC project is Women for Gun Rights. We're a nationwide group of women that are out there fighting to support and maintain our Second Amendment. We do this, and we believe it can be done through education. Not, not we don't need any more gun laws. We need to educate our legislators on the importance of the Second Amendment. And let them know that there are women out there that are defending the second amendment and not just other organizations. We are like the counter visual counter voice to those anti-gun groups. And every, every week I do a two for two, a story, which is a story of how someone used a firearm to defend themselves or a loved one. And this week, I got so confused here. Where am I? Okay. This one took place in West Virginia (laughs) and uh, live radio This happens basically Yep. A woman was her own first responder. She used, actually used a 22 oh. to defend herself. Her brother. Oh wow. He was, a, yeah. He was about to. He was about to make good on threats to cut her arms and legs with a machete. Her
0: this brother. According
3: to the report, her brother.
0: Do we know the, the culture or background of these people by any chance? This is not, this is not no, a typical um, American thing to do. Oh, come on. We need, we need to know race and history. I mean, is this machetes? That's, uh, I, I mean, which cultures use machetes? You know.
3: Yeah. See, that's, that's the thing. Anytime I try to dig deeper, it just, I can't get anywhere. I, there's just so much on the reports that they're giving out. Okay. And I suppose if I went to the police report and did a little more digging, I probably could get a little more information. But I did not. Um, hmm. So this guy, he's 54-year-old, he smushed, smashed out the window of his sister's trailer, mm-hmm. and after he went punched through the window, he raised his arms holding the machete. So the woman, she drew her pistol, pointed at her brother, and but that didn't deter him. And so at that point, he backed up to the refrigerator, raised the machete again, and then rushed to, toward her. So it was then that she feared for her life, and she fired a shot in his direction. And when the police arrived, the brother was sitting on the porch with a machete beside him, and he had a gunshot wound to his leg, which the neighbors had already come over, and they assisted with first aid. So, um, yeah, so man is in jail. Well, he might not be in jail. He was held on a $100,000 security cash bond, but he might be out by now. Um,
0: well it depends where it is. Where does this take place?
3: Virginia. Putnam. Putnam County, West Virginia. Okay, that
0: does I don't think they have a, a Soros DA, so chances are he's probably still in jail. If this were Chicago or Baltimore or New Orleans or any place with a um a Soros D. A, you know, they would be out or New York, they'd be out they'd be out immediately. Probably be rewarded by now. You know, for, for uh you know, the inconvenience of going to jail for, for trying to kill their sister with a um, with a machete, but uh, that's interesting. West Virginia. So, are they illegal oh, alien? Oh, you know what?
3: I left out a part. I left out illegal apart. alien. I jumped right. Illegal.
0: Over. Just curious. Illegal no, alien. No. Oh, no. Okay.
3: It ha- the incident stems from an earlier altercation. Um, he smashed mm-hmm. out the window of his sister's home after she refused to let him use the telephone to report a potential theft theft of his trailer from a nearby address. Hmm. Wow, that's kind of that's kind of. You know, there's got to be something more um, involved like, I don't know, drugs or alcohol, don't you think?
0: <laughs> well, there's a pattern here. It's interesting. When you, when you report these incidents, and, of course, I always look for patterns, it seems like some of these, these death events or near-death events or, or uh, you know, murderous attempts by people start with something really insignificant and stupid. You know, cell phone, um, a call, uh, you know, didn't do, uh, you know, change the TV channel or, or refuse to pick them up after work. Or it's just really incidental, stupid things that the rest of us just talk out. You know, some people just completely fly off the handle. And, and uh, it's interesting, it's possible sociopathy or something involved. But a lot of these things start, and it could be a chain. Uh, have, is there any study, a DC project or anybody you know done studies of incredibly violent acts of the chain events that lead up to them? because we talk about this with accident reports with airplanes. There's usually seven bad decisions in a row that have to be made before an airplane crashes, which is good uh, because it's hard to make seven exact decisions in a row. But if you follow the chain of events, you know, where was the first bad decision? Where was the second one? Where was the third one? You, you eventually lead a chain of, to a chain of events that causes you know, calamitous airplane crashes. So I'm wondering if the same thing holds true with violent acts. You know, how, many, how many incidental acts leading up to a violent act results in a violent act, whereas the, the impetus for that specific act you wouldn't think that that would cause what it did, but there's a chain of events leading up to that. Have you looked into that? Has that been studied, or do you know any uh, um, any have any information on that? I'm just curious.
3: I, I know I do not, but you're right. Today, even it seems to be getting worse. Things that make no sense or something minor turns into something major, you know, like a, a death or a shooting or, or something like that. So, it, it, So what's causing that? Is it the, the social, socially people, people can't communicate because of, are these, well, this one's 54 years old. He's an older person, but sometimes when it's the younger people, is that because they don't know how to communicate and negotiate because all they do is you know, text and play video games. Is that the culture? Is it a culture thing? Is it a environmental thing? Is it a financial? Because, you know, finances and everything else the stress of society right now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It
0: could be a medical a good... thing. could be a medical. I mean, could especially be... with the, yeah. the rampant use of antidepressants. You know, most of the school assassins uh, going back to uh, Columbine you know, were on antidepressants. And we trace. Actually, I've been tracing that for, for years. We, I've done shows on it. You know, And so a lot of these violent acts, because one of the, uh, the side effects of things, everything from Ritalin, I looked up the physician's desk reference, looked up online, from Ritalin to Lubbock to, to uh, uh, what's that one that everybody took? Uh, the, the, you know, take uh, something or other, Prozac. Uh, a lot of them, if you go through their side effects, they list homicidal and suicidal tendencies. Oh, boy, that's interesting for something that's supposed to calm you down. <laughs> you say, wait a minute, how did that get there? You know, but we can we can check the actual sources. But I mean, a lot of this I think is medically induced. But this, the biggest stress right now is economic. I think.
2: I
3: I, I agree. I agree, it's a yeah. lot of. I think it's everything coming to a head right now, and, and
0: mm-hmm.
3: yeah, I agree totally. Yeah.
0: Um, that and five million illegal aliens. You know who are criminals by definition, and of those criminals, those five million criminals, a lot of them are going to commit other criminal acts of violence because hey, they're already criminals. What does it matter? They don't care. They don't care about the law. They wouldn't be here. So that's an interesting. Has that that'd be a fascinating study too? Is is listing, you know, there's something called the Illegal Alien Crime Report. If you want to take a look at that sometime for the show, feel free because that's another source. Um, I might do that myself. Uh, They're on Facebook. You know, they have a website. But uh, has DC Project, in, in noting, you know, civilian uses of uh, defensive uh, firearms, have they noticed an increase in illegal alien uh, aliens as part of the crime statistics? Has that shown up? Or has it shown up in your information?
3: Well, I don't think anyone's actually doing any studies on that organic gathering statistics on it. I mean, I said the group, no, we're not doing hmm. that. No one, no one maybe, maybe someone is that I don't know about, but as far as me, no, I am not. Um, okay. but, um, that's interesting just about curious. Prozac, but yeah. um, anyway, back to the story. The other thing that I, I thought was pretty amazing and a lot, of, mm-hmm. lots of people, they, cause 22s don't, they, they're like, Oh, you don't want to buy a 22 to defend yourself because it's, I
0: was curious it about that too. Stop- yeah. Yeah. I want to hear your take on this.
3: It doesn't have any stopping power. Well. Here's what I always tell. Lots of times I have ladies that are my
0: students
2: mm-hmm.
3: and they are un- unable to handle the recoil of a nine millimeter or they're afraid of it. Um, uh-huh. But I always tell them and they'll go to a, to buy a gun and the person behind the counter, usually a man, will say, oh, you don't want a twenty-two. You need this. <laughs> I, yeah, Honey, have well, I got the someday. gun for
0: you? Is, is that still going on? Honey, have I got the gun for you, sweetie pie? Let me tell yeah, you what you need. because. <sighs>
3: Because I, I will tell them, I will tell them when you go to purchase your firearm, this mm-hmm. is what you are comfortable with, and, and the point is that here's what I tell them: if they're not comfortable with it, if they're afraid of it because of the, it does have a little more recoil, but they can mm-hmm. handle a 22. Why would you get something that you're afraid of and you can't do a, a good follow-up shot if you had to? But if you had a 22, you feel comfortable, confident, and you can handle the, the recoil and have a follow-up shot. Yes, it's not the best, but it's better than having something you're not going to use because you're afraid of. You know, some of these people might say, "Oh, I don't, they're afraid to touch the gun because it scares them because it has it's a nine. And they might as well just throw a rock at them or throw the gun at them. But if you have a .22, you can handle it safely and confidently and let them mm-hmm. do that. I mean, this yeah, want not stop know, the guy.
0: What I know about I .22, mean, he... first of all, it's a gun. So that has an impact of, of if people that are stupid if they walk into guns. You're talking about a, a serious psychopath if they're going to walk into a, somebody with a gun because uh, most people don't go. Oh that's only a 22. I'm going to attack you anyway. You know, so that's that's the advantage. Secondly, 22s even the revolvers can have like, you know, 12 rounds in them. Uh, a lot of the magazines on target pistols are what 15 20 rounds sometimes of 22. Well, I'd rather have 15 rounds of 22 than, you know, two rounds in a derringer of 9mm, quite honestly. And I'm not a big 22 fan because from what I understand, a lot of times they're fatal. 22s kill more people than any other caliber, but they kill them two weeks later. You know, cuz they bounce around. Yeah, away that's what it is. you Go ahead. The assassins use a twenty-two, yeah, but they the come around right the back of your head. 22. Yeah, because it's quiet. It's yeah. easy to shoot. But, yeah. Go ahead, Jackie.
1: But you know another thing too. Uh, to, to Talking to your guests, is that you should uh, you should have on display in your presentation a variety of weapons because you got the standoff weapon, of course, the normal weapon. But what if a man is on you? You know beginning to rape you. What's your next weapon that you can have? The old, hat, the old hairpin. If you're okay, in the shower, okay. you're going to have your hair up in a bun. You're going to hold it there with really a hairpin. Like so if somebody yeah, comes in on you while well, you're in the shower, you ain't going to have a gun on your hip. So you use that old hairpin, you stab them in the neck. So you have to have an array of weapons from knives, swords, the gun. And the ultimate in My daughter, I got her derrings. Where she keeps a in her bra, and she wears the other weapon on her hip.
0: Surely, it's interesting thought. Yeah. Alternate weapons. Do you oh, teach no, alternate that, weapons? That's told, yeah.
3: That's totally brought you know brought up. You have to use whatever is at your disposal. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it be, whether it be hand to hand, or if you can grab like Bianchi says, a, a hairpin, pen. You know, anything that you can, you're going to have to use at your disposal.
0: Yeah, I was thinking I you know, totally of, uh, I actually looked into a katanas for self-defense, Japanese samurai sword. Uh, I've I always had a fascination with swords, either an English knight sword or a katana or something. Katana kind of seems the most useful, you know, in, in, a, in an intimidating street complex. But can you carry one? Uh, does the Florida gun laws, uh, I know you carry a knife if you have a concealed carry permit, but I haven't looked up if you can carry a sword. I'm just curious, I know it's totally off topic, but you know. I got you here now.
1: Well see that's another thing. That's that compromise I tell you about. <laughs> see they got knives now that what a knife blade could only be three inches. What the heck are you gonna do with that? You know well, some people so use security hunting knives on their side in a sheet. Yeah. So we yeah. need to be able to go back to that. This stuff about the politicians, uh, they wanna limit uh, what you have on your on yourself to, for weapons, but they wanna let criminals i out mm. on the street to prey on you once again. It sounds mm. to me like it's a way of population control.
0: <laughs> well, the, the K-Bar, the military, standard military-issue knife for, from World War I on, it's about a six-inch blade. Uh, I've got one. It's very useful. Uh, I don't know if I can carry it under the concealed carry laws. I'll have to take a look at that. Shirley, have we ever talked about alternate weapons like knives and things like that for self-defense? I mean, they require training like firearms do. But uh, do you have thoughts on that?
3: No, we, have, we haven't talked about it, but, yeah, I think if you get as much training as you can, you can get I, – I highly recommend any type of training, whether it be hand-to-hand knife. Um, I think even it doesn't matter the, so much the size of the knife that you can handle it. And, mm-hmm. you know, a couple I've, – I've been told, and I can kind of see this, even for people in the military uh, or law enforcement, <laughs> they'll tell me I'd rather be shot than be cut with a knife.
2: So
0: yeah, the, you know, sorry. Sure. Yeah.
3: They're, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah.
0: Why do they say that though? I'm curious. I mean, I, I've I've heard this before too. I'm curious. But uh, what do you know about it?
3: The damage of doing a knife and the cuts you can have multiple. You know, if you have a knife in your close quarters and you cut, you can do a lot of damage in a little bit of time with just the yeah. fast action of your knife. And you can hit vital, vital veins, vital. Uh, maybe not deep with like you're talking about the size of a knife, but you can cut an artery are
2: you know Yeah bullets
0: just, can you pass the same
2: through way, you. way with a too. You
0: know, yeah. Yeah bullets have to hit a vital but, organ, but they can pass through does the body clothes I I studied wound ballistics. It's a guy Fackler, Something that's fascinating for you, you might want to look into Shirley, uh, as part of well how effective is this, this caliber. And they had the, the body the, the simulated ballistic gelatin and things like that. But they actually did uh, if you've ever heard the Strasburg goat test It's pretty cruel, but it's interesting information now that they've already done it. But they shot a bunch of goats with different calibers to see how long it'd take them to die. I mean, it's disgusting, but it's useful. Um, But uh, wound ballistics, you know, the body tends to close up around a bullet, you know, if it stays in the body. And the body will will fight that bullet, even though there's a lot of trauma to the area around it. Knives, you know, first of all, you don't have to reload them. Uh, Secondly, they can keep cutting. You know, they can take large sections of your body, whereas a bullet might have a small pathway in depending on caliber and may even exit completely and your body might close up around that too. So there's, this very different, you know, properties of, of knife and, and gun defense, but knives, you got to be up next to the person. So that, that presents another, uh, another issue. Have you looked at wound ballistics? Uh, I think that's something you might find fascinating also as a firearms instructor.
3: I have not, but that, that would be very interesting. You make some very good points. Yep.
0: Okay. Fackler. F-A-C-K-L-E-R. Noticed- Look up Fackler. Uh, I know you're taking notes because <laughs> you always have notes for my show. Uh, but uh, look at Learn Look at uh, wound ballistics. Uh, that'll that'll get you going on that topic. Piaski, go ahead. Mm-hmm.
1: You ever notice how laws have eliminated many things that you need? For instance, brass knuckles are illegal. Uh, gravity release knives are illegal. That you can you know get out fast. Knife blade length are now illegal. And now they're coming out the gun. If you're a black belt in karate, mm-hmm. some municipality wants you to have a flag on your hand because it's a what? dangerous weapon.
0: Oh, please. Oh, it's concealed, too. Do you need a license? <laughs> you know, if you have your hands in your pockets, is that a concealed weapon? Sorry, I'm just kidding.
1: You remember the old James Bond movie when the woman had the knife that came out the toe of her shoe? You remember that?
0: Um, which one was that? Was that right, Fatima Blush? It.
1: Yeah, it was a British woman. The one who wore you know, she was really, didn't wear makeup or anything. But she got in a <laughs> she got in a scuffle. And next thing you know, a knife comes out the point of her toe of her shoe. And she used a foot with a knife. Oh,
0: that was from Russia with Love with uh, Lottie Lenya. Who who played uh, Krebs, the the Soviet agent, who and Robert Shaw was the uh, was the secret agent. He was the guy that uh, told everybody that he wanted to have you know, red wine with fish, and he looked like a barbarian. That's why people don't have red wine with fish anymore. Chili, this is way up. Are you a James Bond fan? That was that was. I know I know that scene. I know he's talking about. It was Austin House? So talk about alternate weapons. I mean, we're really off track today. This is kind of fun. It's Friday. Surely we should no, do all kind of weapon stuff. I, yeah. I, okay. I, I don't recommend I the boot the, and the.
3: James Bond, but not a whole lot of them.
0: Oh, you got to watch James but Bond. Films. You... they're wonderful. Not the modern ones. Modern ones suck. Daniel Craig is terrible. Well, I think this. I think he's good, but his films are terrible. The the ones they put him in those ridiculous scenarios. Give us real Bond. Well,
3: just just to go, you know, there is a uh, length uh, for a blade knife mm-hmm. that you can
0: carry and forth with concealed
3: carrying and anything. Less
0: than four inches. So four inches less is legal. So how about, and that's with a concealed carry permit? Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: So and that so also
3: covers, you know, Billy club, tear gas, guns, devices, and other electronic devices. But yeah, see, that makes no I sense. Look, I thought there, I thought there was a a, a size on the knives, but no? I wanted so far. At that, a quick look, it looks like it's four inches.
0: See that's good to know because that's how with a concealed carry permit there wasn't a, a limit. Like if I wanted to carry my K-bar, you know, knife for example, that that would be okay because I had a permit uh, for for a gun. But because uh, arms are arms. Now the Second Amendment, by definition, says that we can carry any knife or any sword of any length we want because those are arms if by any definition.
1: Weapon you want to carry, even a rock, and they would limit David today with his sling. <laughs> well, see, when you got people, yeah, I mean, uh-huh. just think about it. When you got men or politicians that's thinking of ways to disarm you, and especially mm-hmm. when you get down to the least, to the most closest contact, then it seems to me like they have, uh, they open the door for rapists. Because a rapist is going to be on top of you. You know you don't have a gun on. You know you don't have a machete. You got to have the least, the last the last form of defense would be that long six-inch hairpin you got up in your bonnet on your head. Stab him in the neck. Go for that juggle thing.
0: I don't know if Shirley has the bonnet or a hairpin, but I'd be curious. Um, but uh, but I think Priyanka making a very valid point in alternate weapons. I mean, how long if if you're pinned down, you know, you're being attacked, and and for some reason came, you know, you, surprise attack, didn't see it coming, you know, how can you get a free hand to to reach for a gun, take it out of a holster, you know, pull it out and and fire it? That's a that's a lot of operation. When you, know, you a, when you in pretend in a, like session.
1: you have been submitted, that's how. See, that's what he okay. wants to do. He wants to get you on, get you to a point of submission where you start liking it. Pretend like that, then at any moment strike back. Your last, your last attempt.
0: Yeah, I, given Shirley's history, I don't know how much we want to go into this. It's up to you, Shirley. Um, but no, um, I, it's okay. All no, right.
3: there's Just... a lot. You can, there's a lot you can learn in self defense. Yeah. I've taken uh, a couple of self defense classes, and we talked about that. We actually. Mm-hmm lot of the way it was a women's class and the person conducting it was a friend of mine. So he was, he's a retired law enforcement and, Hmm. and we would actually do that. If someone was on top of me, how would you get off? How would you get them off? You want to get them, um, you want to catch them off balance, so you might not be able to get to your gun, but you, your first, you have to put distance between you and that person. So whatever okay. it takes, is there's certain moves you can do, and you can throw them off balance so that you can get up and start to get away, and then, draw your
1: um, yeah, that's you can even good. use verbiage. You can you can even use verbiage attacks. Like, is that all you got, Pee Wee Herman? Got more than that? Get the hell out of you, creep! So anything that you can use <laughs> to your advantage.
3: Exactly. I, lo- I love. What you- I love that. God's a good news. <laughs> Bianchi, you're
0: awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually fascinating, alternative strategies. You know? uh, do you know people that have uh, – I mean, I don't want names or anything like that, but do you know anybody that's been able to defend themselves successfully, you know, verbally and then create space or, or leverage or, or, you know, with alternative weapons, everything from hairpins to uh, – I would say stun guns, you know, but it's the same kind of thing. You still have to reach for it. Right.
3: Personally, I do, I do not. No, okay. I've heard Junkie?
0: stories.
2: But... Yeah. Huh. Jackie?
3: No,
1: I mean, the the verbiage is is humiliating them. Humiliating would take their mind and make everything else stop working. That's humility. Everything, anything that you got to your advantage, you got to be able to use.
0: That's actually a really interesting topic of, of, you know, psychological warfare in a situation like that, because you can still talk, you can still scream, and there's more than just screaming. But if you can, you know, ridicule humiliation, um... I don't, I don't know rape psychology. I've never really looked into it. I mean, what kind of person? First of all, I can't understand why a person could actually bring himself to do that. That's the first thing. And secondly, I wouldn't know, you know, psychologically how you could affect him. I think Pianchi's onto something. It makes sense. Is that something you would include in training? Or or did you see, uh, you know, psychological techniques, uh, Shirley? Or is it mostly just self-defense? No, I, I,
3: I have to get a lot more training in that before I start start um
0: teaching anything
3: like that i have to do a lot more investigating um because yeah. i it sounds it sounds like it makes sense totally um but i don't know anything about that but yeah those are all good points and and mm-hmm. bianca's totally right use what you have available if it's a bobby pin in your hair use it if it's a mm-hmm. pen in your hand use it you know whatever use your hands your fists your fingers fingers to the eyes just
0: keys do
3: it just don't you know keys
0: are good yeah
3: the, key, the thing is, just never give up. You, yeah. you can't give up. As soon as you give up. You
0: you, you,
1: you got to yeah, use your difficult. smart. A man approaching you, you want to look at uh, What are you going to do, rape me? Open your pants. let me see what you got. Is that all you got?
2: Get the hell away
1: from here. You have humiliated <laughs> him. You have put him in a whole different perspective. He's embarrassed. Uh,
0: that's an interesting point. I, I think Piazza said something. Verbal self-defense. <laughs> Well, you know, because they, yeah. they have like verbal judo. You know, they, uh, people always talk about negotiations, conflict resolution, and things like that. I think humiliation is a valid self-defense technique. I think Pianki's uh, got it.
3: And the, the nice thing it would be, it could go totally, totally bad at the same time. <laughs> it could go one way or the other. <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> well, that's the thing. Well, of course, that's that's the risk with any self-defense thing. I mean, you know, you might really make. Uh, the, of course, the, the attacker is already an attacker, so it really doesn't matter if you make an attacker mad. I mean, they're already an attacker, so the, the, that that decision's already been made. But it's, exactly. Uh, it is inter- exactly. It is interesting to contemplate. I mean, I've talked my way out of fights. When I was in school and a bigger kid comes, I'm going to beat the hell out of you. Well, of course you can. Well, what would that prove? Everybody knows you can't. Oh, so you, you, you take it away from them. You take away their victory. I said, but what if I beat you up? He's yeah, like, well, that's never going to happen. You yeah, know, I just one lucky punch. You know, you, you'll be embarrassed for the rest of your life. And they're like, oh, gee, yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's how I used to talk my way out of fights. I'm serious, at word. There you go. That's true. So I was a nerdy true. little guy, right? I was just weakling. I was, I did, you know, I was one of these late bloomers in life. So, you know, the the the, the kids were a lot stronger than I was at the same age. And says, so yeah, of course you can beat me up. Okay, what does that prove? Everybody knows that. But you're gonna look like a you know a hole, <laughs> you know, for doing so. You know, and I'll, I'll be a decent person, and you'll always be an a hole, and everybody will know it. Oh, gee, yeah. And that, <laughs> so and that was it. That was the end of the That's fight. You know, so, you. Yeah. It was funny, but it worked, you know. So, hey. That's why I think uh, I think there's a – I think psychological – I think verbal self-defense might be a valid topic for if you chance to do some research uh, on this and see what's working and what hasn't. Women can talk. Women are used yeah. to making fun of guys. I mean, any guy that's been on a date knows that.
3: I think he, teasing you Shirley. might be holding on to some.
0: Yeah. Let's explore it. List of topics. See, this, this is the fun of this show. You come on the show and you get five more topics. You get five more show topics. This is why you're never going to run out of material. You can't. We just keep coming up with things. Okay. you got to go in a minute, too, I think, right? So, uh, you, you have a, I do. Well, let's sum up I and do. conclude and contact information. Anything else you want to do? The floor is yours.
3: All right. Well, um, once again, I want to thank all our veterans for all their service. Uh, Fight to Keep America Free And um, I am also an author of Heels to Holster I tell my story of uh, self-defense Not (laughs) self-defense Domestic violence I'm a survivor of domestic violence Now I'm on self-defense I'm a a survivor of domestic violence And if you're interested in reading my book And it tells about the transition I made you exercising my Second Amendment rights It's on Amazon Once again, Heels to Holster is the book if you're interested in getting involved with DC Project, Women for Gun Rights, you can go to dcproject.info. And let's see, I believe, oh, if you're, you want to get a hold of me, you can just go to dcproject.info and type in your questions or comments and they will get that to me. And I believe that's it for today. Everybody have an awesome weekend. Have a great Veterans Day. And that's my report for Action Radio.
0: Thank you. Yeah, you're definitely one of the highlights of the week, so uh, I love having you on the show. So have a great weekend. We'll do it again next week. And let me play some uh, stuff for you here, and we'll be right back in just a little bit. Here at Action Radio, we are looking for sponsors. We have 30 and 60-second spots available for your announcements, and we have three-minute live call-ins to talk about your products and services available. Action Radio is the next evolution beyond talk radio. Join us and let us help your business evolve. Think about being a sponsor of the future and not just a listener, and help us help your business grow as you help us plunge headlong into breaking new ground here on Action Radio every day. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try, even fewer go on to get a license. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The complete guide to flight instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Panklos Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't That's G-R-A-I-T-H, care.com. You can email them at gracecare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Grace Care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take. That is Action Radio. Okay, we're back. We've got Pianchi on the line and we're about halfway through uh, our show for today, and then, of course, we have uh, next week. So we're off Saturday and Sunday. Uh, shortly, we're going to have a Saturday show from the uh, Creek uh, Travel Ground, Santa Rosa Creek Tribe, uh, for the, the Creek Fest, which will be the Saturday, this is the 19th of November. So that's coming up just a couple of weeks. We're going to get Chief Dan Skyhorse back on the, uh, on the show here. He's Chief of the Santa Rosa Creek Tribe, and hopefully maybe a couple of council members, and we shall report in great detail. What's going on? But I'll be broadcasting live starting at six in the morning on Saturday. So I'll probably be there about five <laughs> or oh, dark 30, as they say. But I'll set up and I'll have a, fortunately my Yeti blue microphone is set up for, for interviews. Uh, so I, I can uh, turn on the back half of it, which I haven't used yet. So I'll probably test it out before then, but that's what's going on. So uh, a lot of things happening and uh, interesting and important for Shirley. You know, we had some, a lot of good topics. Anyway, I want to get back to World War I you know, because nobody seems to know much about it. I don't think it's taught much in schools and because it was a hundred years ago, and uh, you know, people forget the impact that it had is still being felt today in many areas. I got a bunch of articles on that. Like I said, I don't think Mike's checking with us, so we've got an hour and a half to, to cover a bunch of ground. Pianchi, welcome back to the show. And uh, any, any any comments before we uh, we get started? Anything on, on Shirley was saying or uh, your rather unique uh, verbal self defense techniques, which I find quite interesting, actually.
1: Well, dive into World War One. You're absolutely right. It's not taught in school, which I think is a travesty, <clears throat> because it leaves people with a blank. Uh-huh. Um, the, they begin to think they just dropped out of the sky. Yeah. But the uh, history of how you became who you are and what you are and all parts of it, the things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it has to be taught in order to be able to carry on uh, that pride, the pride of what happened. And how you overcame it to get to where you are, you got to carry it into the future.
0: Yeah. I still think uh, – I modified George Santayana who said those that don't study history are destined to repeat it. I think we're destined to repeat it anyway. I just think we're better equipped if we study it. Uh, I think the, the history of what's happening now has is, is very much happened before. Uh, in different countries. Uh, So we're definitely repeating history, but hopefully we'll have a different outcome. So I found something, the first of my articles uh, is from, I always try and find alternative sources to the regular stuff, uh, the government sources especially. This one comes from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I didn't even know I was reading a Jehovah's Witness website until I got into the second part, which I won't be covering as much, has a lot of biblical references that I'd be better uh, put on the the Oh My God report. But initially the history is quite fascinating. And so this is JW.org, Jehovah's Witness talking about the war that changed the world. And they say, a century ago, millions of young men left the security of their homes and went off to war. They went eagerly, swept along by a wave of patriotism. Here's a quote. I am happy and full of excitement over the wonderful days ahead. And that was an American volunteer in 1914. Soon, though, their enthusiasm turned into bitterness. No one foresaw the way those those huge armies would get bogged down for years in the mud of Belgium and France. At the time, people termed it the Great War Today, we know it as the First World War. The First World War was decidedly great in terms of casualties. By some estimates, it left about 10 million dead and 20 million mutilated. It was also the result of great blunders. European statesmen were unable to stop international tensions from escalating into a global conflict. We're facing that right now with Ukraine and Russia, right? More important, perhaps, is the fact that the Great War left great scars. It changed the world in ways that still affect us today. Next headline, Mistakes That Destroyed Trust. The First World War broke out because of miscalculations. European leaders acted like a generation of sleepwalkers that stumbled unawares over the ledge of doom during the Halcyon summer of 1914, and that's from uh, The Fall of the Dynasties, The Collapse of the Old Order, 1905 to 1922. Within weeks, the assassination of an Austrian Archduke, that would be Franz Ferdinand, Plunged all the major European powers into a war they did not want. I disagree. I think they did. They went ahead anyway. The quote is: "How did it all happen?" And that's the German Chancellor uh, who was asked that a few days after hostilities began. He says, "Ah, if I only, if if only one knew," uh, he sadly replied. Um, I think they bumbled into it. I think they wanted war. World War Two, they backed into it by mistake. But World War One, I, I think the powers uh, going to war over the assassination of one Archduke that quickly. No, nah, I, I believe they wanted to do it. I, just, I don't think they had any idea how bad it was going to actually be. Article says the leaders who made the faithful decisions that led up to the war had no inkling of the consequences. Oh, I think I just said that. But reality soon dawned on the soldiers in the trenches. They discovered that their statesmen had failed them, their clergy had deceived them, and their generals had betrayed them. And this is where I found this article really interesting. It says, the statesman, the statesman promised that the war would open the way to a new and better world. I've never heard that before. The German chancellor proclaims, we are fighting for the fruits of our peaceful industry, for the inheritance of a great past, and for our future. American President Woodrow Wilson, who I really took after in the first hour of the show, helped to coin a reassuring populist slogan that the war would make the world safe for democracy. I think we just heard that in the last election. And in Britain, people thought it would be a war to end war. They were all mistaken. Next headline, the clergy. The clergy supported the war enthusiastically. I didn't know this. The guardians of God's word led the martial chorus. Total war came to mean total hatred, and that's from Columbia history of the world. And clerics fanned rather than quenched the flames of hatred. Clergymen were unable and for the most part unwilling to place Christian faith before nationality, observes a history of Christianity. Most took the easy way out and equated Christianity with patriotism. Christian soldiers of all denominations were exhorted to kill each other in the name of their savior. Yeah, it's interesting. This was a Christian on Christian war. You know, you look at Europe, Pianki, well, uh, and the, the French, the Belgians, the, the Germans, the Russians, you know, the, the, uh, the English, they're all Christians, Americans. Listen, the religion well, see, didn't play as much a part. Go ahead.
1: That has been since the beginning of man, humankind
2: mm-hmm. his is
1: wars. See, so uh, before you have the concentration of your religions today, mm-hmm. every ethnic group, and I, I, I put emphasis on every ethnic group had their own god head, that God, and they carried it out to battle with them
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the front as a banner. It could mm-hmm. be a symbol of a ram. It could be a symbol of a cross, a cross mm-hmm. with the uh, the horizontal in the middle, the, which later became the horizontal close to the top. Mm-hmm. So they had their Godhead, and that's what led them out to battle. That's what they uh, seemingly unseen power was with their Godhead. And it goes right on down into uh, modern times. In a in 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 a way, I mean, you have these groups that have been fighting each other, like the Hatfields and the McCoy. They've been uh-huh. fighting each other all the time. Yeah. I mean, the real terror in some of these nations, you never see them. Mm-hmm. You, you ever see the movie Southern Comfort?
0: Uh, I think I've might have seen parts of it. I've heard of it. Tell me, tell me what you're in reference to.
1: So well, Southern Comfort. You get into the backwoods with those people; those people are vicious. And you got the same thing in some of these countries. In, in Afghanistan, you got these uh, pockets of groups. People are like Russian czars, uh, Khazars, so, yeah, the Khazars. Those are some vicious people, and mm-hmm. they don't take prisoners. So yeah. you will fight the regular army, but when you uh, it's like the militia. When you fight the regular army, you just about know what you're going to expect. But when you uh-huh. get past the regular army, now you're fighting for the soul of that country. That soul can be very vicious in those different ethnic groups, and they fight to the
0: death. Well, because they absolutely believe in what they're doing. There's a difference between a hired soldier, a mercenary, and someone fighting for their homeland. You know, that's you look at the the war for independence. I mean, Americans were fighting for the homeland. The British were, were conscripts. They were kids. They were, they were just sent into war, uh, especially when the big problems oh, was the yeah. Americans. Remember when they, they took American soldiers in the War of eighteen twelve? They take Americans and make them fight for the British, or hang them. Mm-hmm. You so, know when I mean, the British
1: burned Washington, burned Washington, the White House,
0: uh-huh. and they
1: was gonna march over to uh, march over to uh, New Orleans. All along the way, they met militia, militia guerrilla people, and they uh-huh. just picked them apart. Uh, Sherman marching rifles. down to the middle, he got to uh, Kennesaw, Kennesaw Mountain. The mountaineers picked him apart.
0: Interesting. You don't hear about that. That's fascinating. I mean, to, and look at the Swiss. The, the Swiss haven't been invaded in 400 years. Well, that's because they've been armed for for probably longer than that. But every Swiss citizen, you know, goes through military training, and that's what saved them in World War II. It wasn't the fact that they were neutral, because a lot of countries wanted to be neutral. They didn't want any part of it. But it's quite fascinating. Um, yeah, that's all very true. It, it, it's interesting. Remember the TV show Justified? Uh, it was basically an FBI agent put in in Appalachia, and it was talking. It's amazingly violent, you know. Uh, and some of the, the attitudes and things that go on. I don't know how accurate it was, but uh, it was uh, it was a fascinating TV show for a while there. Anyway, um, let me get back to this article here, talking about the the. the oh, do you have a comment on that uh, before I go further? Uh, do you mean to? to...
1: Let's go further.
0: Okay, so the last category in this article is the generals. And these are the people that I fault most. Do you know what? Actually, we had a really good general. We had General Pershing, uh, Blackjack Pershing in World War I. So obviously he was ordered to fight World War I by Woodrow Wilson. Uh, I think if Pershing were president, we might not have been there. But Pershing was the one who kept American soldiers under American command. See, the British and the French wanted the soldiers to be under British and French command. And Pershing was like, no, if it's, if it's Americans going in, they're going to be under American officers, and they're going to be under me." So uh, we can work together, but we ain't, American soldiers are not going to become part of uh, British and French uh, units because he saw how badly they were managing their troops. They are running into machine guns every night and dying. It was stupid, and he was smarter than that. So Persians a really interesting character in World War I uh, in terms of uh, one you of the know, uh,
1: I'm talking yeah. about General Pershing. You know you had black leaders mm-hmm. that uh, complained to the army is that they wouldn't let black soldiers fight on the front line. Yeah. uh it. that was that was
0: actually, that was preservation. That was actually, a, you know, nobody should have been on the front line, but uh, it's interesting that, uh, yeah. Now, um, when were the Buffalo Soldiers? They, they were mostly 1800s, right? Because they were still Buffalo Soldier units up until, I think, 1950. It was, the,
1: was then during the Indian Wars. That right. was a name given to them by Indians because of the way your hair looked. And mm-hmm. a lot of them that fought on both sides in Civil War end up being uh, part of that regiment.
0: Well, that's interesting. Because I know the Buffalo Soldiers were, were black soldiers, and I know that, uh, that there were actual Buffalo Soldier units till very late, like mid-1900s. There were still technically, you know, Buffalo Soldier units. And then, of course, the, the service got desegregated um, by an executive order from Truman about time. World War Two is very interesting in terms of, of segregation of the forces, the Tuskegee Airmen. I actually knew... Uh, one of the Tuskegee Airmen, he was a flight instructor uh, when I was uh, teaching flying uh, in Oakland, California, you know, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s. And so mm-hmm. I got a rare look into somebody who actually was there, you know, who flew P-51s, you know, out of, uh, uh, what was that air base? I forgot what it's called. Ramatelli or something like that. Uh, anyway, so it, it's, uh, you know, I, I've well, had a, Patton, a chance to talk. To... Go ahead.
1: Patton's 3rd Army had uh, tank troop had. One hundred and sixty first, he called them up, he, and he, you know I like that man. And he said, "Don't let me down, and, and don't let your people down."
0: You know who he was talking about. Yeah, so I didn't but know there was a tank, was, uh, black tank regiment. That's new. That would be something interesting to uh, to talk about at some well, point. Well, you
1: had you had black tank regiments that actually liberated some death camps, some concentration camps. And I don't remember which one. It might have been Buchenwald or Dakwa, mm-hmm.
2: I've been to uh, Daka. They
1: were the first ones to go in that. and push open the doors. And, yeah, I visited, and the prisoners yeah. would stare at them. But yeah. they was happy as hell. Oh, the, listen, I, 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 don't,
0: I don't care how racist you are. If you're in a prison or if you're in a concentration camp. And, and you're a white person and a black soldier comes to get you out of there, uh, that, that's when your prejudice dies right there. <laughs> you know, it's like, get me the hell out of here. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, and that's interesting. That's in, in life-saving situations. You know, how many people maintain, you know, their prejudice when, uh, when like, uh, firefighters were, or fire departments were desegregated? How many people who, who had racial prejudice against black firefighters were really glad to see a firefighter, regardless of their skin color, you know, when their house is burning? You know, so so emergencies tend to do that. They tend to sort of, uh, you know, take some of the, the, the attitudes, uh, the less desirable attitudes out of people. Uh, so that's a good thing. Now, let me go back to the generals, because, in fact, General Pershing would be an interesting person to uh, report on. But the article says the generals promised a quick and easy victory, but it was not to be. Before long, the opposing armies came to a grueling stalemate. Thereafter, millions, and this is the sad part, millions of soldiers faced what one historian described. historian described, That's perhaps the cruelest large-scale ordeal that the flesh and spirit of man has endured. Despite appalling losses, generals kept throwing their men against barricades of barbed wire and brushes of machine gun fire. This is just what I've been talking about most of the show, right? Not surprisingly, widespread mutinies broke out. So I I need to look up that. It says, how, how did the First World War affect society? One historical work quotes a veteran as saying, the war scorched the minds and character of a generation. Indeed, in the wake of that war, entire empires had disappeared. That tragic conflict proved to be the prelude to the bloodiest century mankind has ever known, that being the 1900s. Revolutions and strikes came to seem almost commonplace. Why did the war turn the world upside down? What was, it really, was it really just a colossal accident? Do the answers reveal anything about our future? And those are the questions they ask at the end of the article. And there's more to it, um, but uh, I want to hold that there for this particular article. Interesting, huh?
1: Well, you know, Greg, the United States have been influenced by divine intervention. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those that believe in it, because there's so many that believe in it, so there has to be some truth to it. But see, that divine intervention will leave you when you do some deplorable things and agree to it. And you know what that is. It's killing the babies. Mm -hmm. Because people talk about the return of the Savior. Well, how would the Savior return? He would have to return through the womb in a human form so that you can recognize and get a better conception of him. Mm-hmm. And so that karma, that karma is going to be what people say is going to be a bitch. The killing mm-hmm. of babies is the ultimate deplorable thing you can do to a nation because now you're cutting off its future.
0: Yeah, the toleration proportion- of is one thing the you know, the obsession with abortion is something else. This is something I do not understand, this, uh, this obsession, that this is so important, uh, especially, you know, you have uh, women fighting for this and, you know, supposedly nurturing, you know, more so than the guys who are more supposedly more warlike. Um, but you've got a situation where it's violent leftist feminist women are screaming. I mean, this is, this is life is to fight for this thing that's not a right. Nobody has a right to kill anybody else. It's not a right. You know, um, where the states are going to come out on this, I'm very curious to see. But it it never can be a right because, first of all, it affects two people and one of them ends up dead. So this this is not a right that people are fighting for. They're fighting for the ability to kill their children, something that uh, if anybody else did, it would be a murder charge. And this is the, this is one of the ultimate ironies, that uh, a woman who has a late-term abortion, if uh, somebody murdered a baby, you know, committing a, a crime, that person would be up for uh, uh, you know, murder. If they kill the mother and the baby, they're murderers. Well, how is that? that you know, when I talk about inconsistency in law. Just the legal aspects of this it is a very strange thing. This is what makes it such a complex issue. But well, uh, I, I, the, I don't understand. I don't understand it. I don't. I don't. I don't get where where this obsession comes it. from. Yeah.
1: Under uh, normal, it's an obsession. Under normal circumstances, the mother would not do that. You, in no form of life, animal, uh-huh. foul species. They wouldn't do that. So where does this, as you described, obsession come from? So it has to be, you know, I really don't like to talk about these things, but I can't. It has to be demonic. I mean, there's some forces that we can't see that's out there working. I wish Wendy was here.
0: I just that. That's why I, I'm, I'm going to send this article to Wendy with the biblical references cause, so she can explain it better. But uh, yeah, that's exactly uh, what I was thinking. Uh, and it, it is, I mean, there is evil. There's definitely evil. There's evil in the hearts of people that can, uh, it's one thing if an emergency, if, uh, if this happens, you know, if someone takes a morning after pill you know, the day after, literally the morning after, you know, and they know they made a mistake, they know there's something wrong, they don't want to have a pregnancy. And I mean, I understand that. You know, whether you condone, accept, or, or, you know, I wouldn't make that illegal. I just wouldn't. Um, But once you start, you know, the further along you get, there's a point we, this has been interesting since some time at what point, where where are people, are you at the point where you don't even allow uh, birth control? I think that's a mistake. Uh, I think there are people that say, you know, you can't use a morning after pill. Uh, I think, uh, you know, a, a developing few cells, if you have to do it, I don't like it. I don't condone it, but I wouldn't make it illegal either. But once you have a developing baby, and that might be a week, two weeks, whatever you know, science uh, can show us, uh, now, now you're in a whole different ballpark. People don't mind uh, well, an abortion that's, the body a, that's a cellular you know thing.
2: When you What's start, that?
1: The body lets you know when you start vomiting. Hell, yeah. even a man gets seasick. And mm-hmm. see, here's the thing, too. In the history of humankind, whatever mm-hmm. there was war in between two factions, one of the first things that you've done, You will usher the women and the children off to safety, whether that's on top of the mountain or in the forest someplace. Then it will left Mm -hmm. up to the men. But it's just not natural for women to be fighting because if you're fighting, what happens to the children? What happens to the ability to reproduce? Because if you do have a war, there's going to be lives expended. Those mm-hmm. lives had to be replaced in order to carry on, pick up where you left off and carry on into the future.
0: Yeah. And if it was a survival thing, I hate to be this blunt, but, you know, one man could help, you know, populate or have children with, with several women in an emergency situation if a mass amount of the men in the nation were, di- were killed. Well, look at Russia. It would be interesting to study Russia after World War II because 80% of the men born in 1922 who turned 18 in 1940 were killed in the war. So Russia lost 80% of an entire year of men to World War II. So who was left to rebuild Russia? Well, the people that didn't serve are the people that and were that older memory, or younger. Yeah.
1: And that memory still lies in Russians today. Thus, why they don't tolerate NATO putting missiles in adjacent countries pointed at
0: them. I agree. I think, I think in Russia, in this case, is absolutely right. The people that NATO would have dissolved, when, when and I, I've said this before, I'll say it again, that NATO should have dissolved, or we should at least have gotten out of it completely, when the Soviet Union collapsed. And that was back during uh, Gorbachev and uh, Reagan. Uh, and Reagan, you know, he, the, one of the best things he could have done, he could have done it, too, is taken us out of NATO and said, the mission of NATO is over. The Soviet Union has collapsed. It's now the, the Russian Federation. Eastern Europe and Western Europe. You guys have to figure this out from here on. We no longer need to be here. That would have been historic. He didn't do it. It was a window of opportunity that he missed. And now look where we are. So sometimes, you know, inaction is just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than action. In this case, the inaction of not getting out of NATO and ceasing funding of NATO is really responsible for what's going on in Ukraine right now. All right, let me get well, to another Go ahead. Was,
1: hmm? That's the reason those countries were called Balkan countries. They were the buffer between invaders and getting into mm-hmm. the hearts of Russia. Yeah. Germany got, the uh, German troops got, what, within 15 miles of Moscow? And well, then you had
0: people... Had the winter, the winter yeah, killed
1: them. It, right. It was within 15 miles. Then the people had to move. They they moved entire factories in the heart of winter. They had yeah. to dig through the permafrost to get down to where they could pick, get to the bottom so they could take them elsewhere where they would be safe and put back into operation, producing war goods.
0: Yep. Yeah, you've heard of the term scorched earth policy. They literally burned their cities and left and, and moved uh, moved um, east. And so they stretched out the German supply line so much that by the time they were across Russia, the Germans were not equipped for the Russian winter, and the Russians were. I mean, they trained yeah. the, the Siberian troops were the ones that came in in the wintertime. So yeah, they claimed
1: that it was General January and February that defeated the Germans.
0: January and February of 1942, probably right when Stalingrad and uh, Reuters, Moscow. Yeah. yeah. Well, Stalingrad was under siege, and then it became Volgograd. Leningrad, which I think became something oh, Stalingrad, St. Petersburg. I forget which one's which, But anyway, they changed names. Let me get this article. I want me get back to World War One because this is, this is fascinating. Then we'll see if Mike's going to join us. I doubt it. I don't have a message from Mike, so I don't think we're going to have Science Friday um, today. So uh, that's okay. He probably thinks he's new. We'll have to tell him. We, we do holidays here on the show. Next article is from um, – this is from the Farmer's Almanac. 10 Ways World War I Changed America. The Great War life in America Forever. Here's a list of 10 of the more enduring and interesting changes. Ironically, the Farmer's Almanac article is by Bob Farmer, you know, January 28th, 2021. So this is just last year. He says, sandwiched between the Civil War and World War II, many people overlook the Great War which began over 100 years ago, in the summer of 1914. America resisted entering the war in Europe for three years, but finally joined the first transatlantic fight on April 6, 1917. The First World War ended the next year in the fall of 1918. So we were only in this for, for a year and six months. Most of what was being done had already been done. Anyway, next headline, 10 Ways World War One Changed America. Women, most of whom never worked outside the home, were in high demand to work at all types of factories and businesses. happened in World War II with Rosie the Riveter. It says nearly a million women were employed in jobs previously held by men. Of course, what they don't say is that the fact that once the men came back, women lost those jobs. Is it, this would be a fascinating. Thing. I should talk to Shirley and, and Wendy and, and the, uh, some of the women on the show that the history of, of, of women you know, in the wars they were able to do all kinds of things. Did you ever see movies? In the in the 40s, and look at the characters, the women characters. I, I did a little study of this with my daughter when I raised her. We looked at movies in the 40s, and the women had fascinating scripts. They were equal to the guys. The film noir, you know, the women had uh, they were characters. You know, and then in the 50s, it all changed when women, you know, were out of the jobs and back in the home, and uh, you know, the baby boom taking over, and uh, sitcoms started, and uh, we had suburban homes and things like that. The roles of women, TV and movies, drastically changed. They became simple, stupid. Uh, you know a lot less valuable than women in the 40s were during the war. Have you ever taken a look at those films? It's, it's really quite interesting. It was stronger women then. There were. They had to be. There was a war going on. There's rationing. People forget we were rat. They rationed everything. So if you want to know what the, what a supply it chain is going true. to look like, look at World War II rationing. Victory Gardens. Yeah, and it was cards. stronger
1: women. They had to bear babies.
0: Yeah. Well, women were stronger when they were pioneers too. So uh, our whole society has gone soft, both men and women, you know, and it's, it's by design, which is too bad. Here's the next one. Number two, prior to the war, the women's campaign for the right to vote fell on deaf ears. Afterward, even President Wilson urged, Cong- urged Congress to pass the 19th Amendment, which succeeded in 1920. Number three, future President Herbert Hoover was appointed the director of the newly created U.S. Food Administration. Hoover encouraged citizens to plant victory gardens or personal gardens. This is the genesis of the urban gardens we know today. Over 20 million gardens were planted, and U.S. consumption decreased by 15%, conserving groups. Did you ever hear of Victory Gardens? I mean, I've read about them in history a little bit, but uh, this is what yeah, we pay for. Our, our, yeah. So people should plant to today. See, lawns, I, I am, I'm against lawns. Lawns are stupid. Green lawns are a total waste of land. Grow food. It you is. know, plant Natural plants have natural plants that don't need water, don't need fertilizer, don't need anything because they grow there naturally anyway. So I'm in Florida. I want Florida plants. If you're in Wisconsin, get Wisconsin plants that can handle the wintertime. Grow gardens. You know, that's uh, something I don't have a lot of land here where I happen to live. But if I did, yeah, and I'm trying to get some fruit fruit trees planted here Uh, because I'm in Florida. You know, lemons, limes, uh, oranges, things like that, citrus plants. Uh, Grow what you can where you are.
1: The pulse of the country, the way it's going, you're gonna need those gardens. Mm-hmm. See people need to start preparing early. Start preparing mm-hmm. like you say in the preparation for food, a shelter, start preparing in your people in the uses of weapons. You gotta prepare. Yep. And that also sends a message.
0: Yeah, a lot of times people, though, um, you know, when they don't have the money to invest in things, um, it'd be nice to have the money and the time. People always have problems with money and time. You got to make the money. You got to make the time. Understand? Always easy to do. But if you have a if you have a house and you have a back, you know, a front yard or a backyard, you know, plant a garden in one of them. Probably the backyard. Play in the front yard, or if the kids play in the backyard, plant a garden. In the And uh, and just uh, you know we have a lot of farmland here. Well, I actually go ahead.
1: One of the things you got the land is to build you like a a below surface storage. You know you can Mm -hmm. do it with cinder blocks and pour concrete floor, and then you store beans and uh, food stuff like that in that below surface. One thing, the temperature is going to be cool all the time. Mm-hmm. and uh, that's what you gotta,
0: That's what you do to plan. Yeah. I don't like living in a city. You know, This is why I'll never live in a city again, because I want to be near front end. I want to be near natural resources. I want to be out in the open. I want to have roads that I can use, and hopefully I'll have my jet one day, so that if I need to go someplace quickly, I'll be gone. Um, Four, I think you're going to find interesting. This is one of the largest shifts in population in the 20th century was the movement of African Americans uh, made from the south to be employed in northern factories, Ford Motor Company was a leader in the employment of minorities. Now, Ford Motor Company has other problems, <laughs> you know, but uh, this wasn't one of them. Ford Motor Company, you know, Henry Ford pioneered paying people a decent wage because he said, how can people buy my cars if I don't pay them decently? Because the the, the other folks were like, you know, the minimum wage possible to get by. Who to buy their products? If you can't afford a Ford, you know, what's the point of making them? So for Henry Ford realized that pretty early. Did you know about that, the, the shift of... Uh, 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 black folks from the rest of the centuries in World War One. I. I didn't think that.
1: Yeah, it was a great migration for them. And yeah. now it's reversed the going back of those that have the means. Which yeah, is that's a good idea. Is,
0: well, isn't it interesting? They talk about the people, they, the, the left will lie about the great reversal, that all of a sudden the Democrat racists who had segregation became the good guys and the Republicans became the racists. You know, that's a bunch of nonsense. But it's interesting that the South which was not a free place, you know. Uh, all the way up to segregation from slavery to segregation is now probably the freest place in the country, you know, from Texas to uh, to North Carolina to Virginia to Florida. You know, the states that believe in freedom. As long
1: as the people that's coming back don't bring, the long as the people that's coming back don't bring racism. See, it's one thing to run from it, but when you go and you evolve and you come back with it to use against. Uh somebody who had nothing to do with what you ran from in the first place, that is totally wrong. And you see a lot of that. You gotta know how to identify it.
0: Well, well what's interesting in this election, we were all worried about that. Uh those of us in Florida were worried that all the people coming to Florida, which is a thousand a day coming to Florida and that's huge. You know, and so we were worried that these people would bring in their, their socialism from New Jersey and New York and uh you know, and all the places that Florida's drawing from. I think Texas is drawing more from the western half of the country, and Florida is drawing more from the eastern half. But what we found in this last election was just the opposite. You know that um, Ron DeSantis
1: be verbal.
0: Yeah, yeah. Ron DeSantis
1: only one. and let people know. Come on yeah. in, oh, yeah, and yeah.
3: leave. You know,
1: you ever go into a place where you had to leave your guns at the door?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. I have. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. How do you know you're gonna get yeah. them back? That'd be, uh, oh, they, course, would... it's just like uh,
1: it's like a coat check. You, you oh, check back, your guns.
0: But they oh, say yeah.
1: you gotta leave your guns here. Was it a bar? Well, yeah, sort of like a nightclub. I've done that uh, in East St. Louis, right uh, on Route Three. Check just your someplace. guns. Yeah, right That's not bad idea. Yard, across from the stockyards.
0: As long as security's armed in case some wacko comes in, like the uh, the Orlando massacre. The, the well, I wasn't really a massacre. It was well. I'm sorry. I just go into details on that. But the Orlando assassinations, when that uh, that criminal came into, I think it was a a, a dance club. fact, I believe it was predominantly gay gang dance club, uh, and uh, yeah, and so if people were checking the guns at the door, you know, you gotta have security armed because everybody knows that's a that's a victim zone. But I don't think there's well,
1: an the but You yeah. check your obvious gun at the door but always had the backup. The
0: uh oh, okay. Sterling
1: semi automatic shot twenty two long rifle. Okay.
0: So uh, So what do you do when you're on the dance floor doing a John, John Travolta and your gun pops out and hits the floor?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well <I> already, <laughs> you know what, Gary? That happened when
0: <laughs> Oh.
1: That happened one. <laughs> gun fell on the floor. It didn't go off,
0: though. <laughs> well, no, they don't. That's what the safety's for, and that's what the revolvers don't go off when They drop on the floor and semi-auto. I had that happen one time. <laughs> to, now, you don't have to admit this, but, but talking personal experience, or is this somebody you know? You, and you don't have to answer that question. Well, we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, yeah, you don't want your guns falling out, so, so make sure they are secured properly, uh, especially if you're bringing one to a place that says that uh, you're not supposed to, you're supposed to check your guns. Let's move on to number five, the power of the federal government, and that of president in particular greatly expanded during the war, which has carried on to this day. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, the federal government increase of power uh, in both World War I and World War II. You know, the imperial America, the Pax Americana, as, George, as G. Gordon Liddy used to call it. These are the two best times in the history of the world where the Pax Britannica, when Britain ruled the world, and the Pax Americana, the peace imposed by Britain and the United States. I think one of the great, our greatest problems was after World War I and World War II where we became the world police force, where we thought we had to uh, you know, insert ourselves into every conflict and then nation build after it and try and make them us. we leading by, by people tried to enforce it through the military, and that's caused a whole bunch of problems. I think Pianchi? Well,
2: think, yeah,
1: there's a lot to be learned from the past. I mean, that's that's what it's there for, and that's why it should never yeah. uh, go away.
0: Yeah, a couple more here.
1: I mean, the content itself will get smaller, uh, more compact, and more compact because of the space. Mm-hmm. But the, that's why I was against taking down statues. I think mm-hmm. either they should be up, or you know, you go to Ethiopia, they got statues all over the place. They got the statue of uh, Menelik. they got the statue of uh Tech Tortures. They got statues that to remind you. Yeah,
0: they so they only have. remember Tali Selassie, the only little Ethiopian I know Selassie and he was, I think, sixties, seventies, eighties, somewhere in there. Yeah, interesting. Well, it, what fascinates me about the Civil War statues is that, uh, you know, you would think if these Civil War statues were so offensive to especially the black population, that they would have had them come down when they went up, which is like early 1900s. You know, why is it in the in the 2000s that all of a sudden people are objecting to these statues when they've been up for 100 years? And even during the Civil Rights Movement, I don't think they called for statues to come down because they realized it was part of our history. This well, yeah, those phenomenal. soldiers
1: fall Soldiers followed several wars, you know, from the uh, uh-huh. Mexican-American War with the, uh, the Spanish-American War, of course, mm-hmm. the Civil War.
0: Yeah, so just a timeline. You for might time to have
1: life, one or two that was still left over from the Revolutionary War.
0: Yeah. Well, let's just do a quick timeline. So if I know war, uh, 1775, the, the war for independence from Britain, uh, war of twelve. Uh, the Civil War, which was 1860 to 1864. Um, the Spanish-American War was 1890, I believe. The Mexican-American War was a bit before that. World War One, 1914 to 1918. We were only there for a year and a half. War II, well, actually, it started in 1938, I believe, with uh, Japan invading China. But let's just say 1939 with the invasion of Poland. Korea, 50 to 53. Vietnam, I think, what, 58 with advisors through uh, 74, I think, before that finally ended. Uh, and then you had the both Iraq wars. You had Afghanistan and now Ukraine, which is not a shooting war for us, but it's certainly a war we're heavily involved with with a whole bunch of money. And how many of those were declared? <laughs> you know, after World War II. They were just made up. So talk about the power of the president to not only uh, wage war, but to declare war is a power that was granted to the president illegally by the Congress, starting in World War One. Well, actually, two, because World War One, there was a declaration. Uh, Congress gave Wilson a Declaration of War. Congress gave uh, Roosevelt a Declaration of World War Two. For obvious reasons, Pearl Harbor was attacked. All right, let me get one here. Uh, volunteers spent. The Red Cross, Boy Scouts, and Girl Scouts enjoyed a growth in membership and interest in their collective action groups. Number eight, the horrors of war ushered in the Roaring Twenties with an anything-goes attitude and a quest for fun, fashion, and frolicking. You know, How are you going to keep them down on a farm after they've seen Paris (laughs) was a whimsical chorus to help explain the population shift from the farms to the cities. Well, the other thing about the Roaring Twenties that we've talked about earlier when uh, Dr. Walter Williams was on the show is is that uh, Coolidge cut the budget in half and the national debt in half. We had unparalleled prosperity. So you, you combine the attitude. Oh yeah, of the he World was War,
1: something War. else. He
0: was, he was great. Oh yeah, who was his favorite uh, president? As far as president, though, simply because um, of what he did. He had the courage to cut the budget and cut the national debt both in half. We need to do that now, at least. Yeah, but that so the financial so the roaring twenties had a financial component, which was that, plus the fact that we just come off World War One. The roaring twenties is an interesting time in this country, and then came prohibition, with the other extreme. So we went from the Roaring Twenties to, uh, you know, suppression. For nine, for the first time, middle-class Americans traveled overseas to visit countries and cities they came to know with the war. European tourism increased as Americans wanted to visit battlefields and graves. Tourism, you never think about that after World War One, But uh, the ships, the great ships, you know, Mary Queen Elizabeth, the United States, these big ocean liners started after World War One, And World War Two they were troop ships, you know, but uh, and they carried on for a little bit after that. Until well, we had the then we had the airplanes, you know, that uh that over the D C four D C five no it wasn't a five. D C four, D C six, D C uh, seven. the uh, and the big one, my favorite one, the Lockheed Constellation. The biggest airplane ever made. With with the three tails. Beautiful prop airplane.
1: Yeah the Constellation uh it was something else.
0: Oh, it was gorgeous. That's it looked great. like a dolphin. Very sleek airplane, and then of mm-hmm. course with the uh, 1959, with the advent of the uh, the airplane that changed uh, travel forever. You know, so it's interesting. You, 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 these little markers along the way, but tourism, the history of tourism is quite fascinating too. I never thought about. It. I didn't know what happened after World War. I. Never thought about it. Number ten, despite isolationist sentiments, which of course I have, after the war states became world leader in industry, economics, and trade. The world became more connected to each other, which ushered in the beginning of what we call the world economy, for better or for worse. <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, that's this article. Let's, uh, let's here. Here's another one. Here's one from on the website called Ranker. 18 Ways World War I Directly Shaped the Way We Live Now. This is by Kellen Perry, K-E-L-L-E-N-P-E-R-R-Y, uh, September 23rd, 2021. These are actually fairly recent articles. It says it forever changed how wars were fought. In World, war, in World War I, that technology became an essential element in the art of war. To so, quote Guillermo Altares of El Pai, which would be the, the piece. Submarines, aerial bombardment, armored tanks, toxic gas attacks, barbara, all were either invented or revolutionized during the Great War. That's actually, uh, we've talked a little bit about it on the show now, but you figure there, there really weren't tanks before. I mean, they were doing, before World War I, they had still had cavalry charges with sabers. You know, this well, is the tanks was
1: one way to get the barbed wire out of the way, remember?
0: Yep, that's true. And the tanks were slow. Remember the original British tank? They did, what, five miles an hour? <laughs> They're more like a street cleaner. They were They were pretty – but they – do you know who was uh, – do you remember Patton's great revol, uh, revolutionary military equipment? Do you know what he made? We still use them today. What's that? He put a 50 caliber machine gun on a Jeep. Ever see the TV show The Rat Patrol? Yeah, he was the he was the inventor of the of the mechanized infantry, of the armored infantry because he put a machine gun on a jeep, and that's how that was what they used against Pancho Villa in Mexico in the Mexican American War. That was a patent invention. That's how he was like a lieutenant. That's how he got uh, he advanced the military so fast because he came up with that idea. And then they, and so we had armored infantry, we had mobile infantry able to take machine guns anywhere they needed to go because they slapped them on jeeps. It's a really interesting story. Let me continue on here. It was also the first time technology was such an overwhelmingly destructive force with poison gas alone capable of wiping out thousands at a time. The Germans even had so-called blue cross shells containing chlorosine, Never heard of that. Which made victims sneeze violently. They called shells mask breakers. So they even had a gas that made you sneeze so violently it you broke your gas mask. That's evil. That is pure evil. Next part of this, World War I forever changed the public's attitude towards war. Historian Jay Winter argues that World War I discredited the concept of glory, that's something we've talked about earlier in the show, and exposed the idea that it was, no, that it was noble to perish for one's country as an old lie. Winter claims that the propaganda literature and, and painting of war as, was cleaned away by artists in World War I because millions of men slaughtered deserve more than elevated prose, they deserved an, the the unaltered or unadulterated uh, truth. Do you ever see the uh, the painting that uh, Picasso made, um, uh, Granica? It was a, it was a city that was bombed for no reason whatsoever by, by the Nazis. You know, on behalf I think uh, I think they're fighting on the side of Franco. Um, I forgot I got I got to look up the Spanish Civil War. But anyway, the Germans bombed the city of, of Granica and killed thousands of people for no reason. It's really the first aerial bombardment of civilians for no reason. And it, it was like a foreshadowing of what was to come. Picasso painted this famous painting of it. It's one of the first of his Cubist paintings. Have you ever seen it? No, oh, Panky's left us. But, uh, let me just double check. Make sure I'm still broadcasting. Yeah, I'm still on. Okay, good. All right, let me continue on. Yeah, here I'm on. Uh... I'm sorry. Okay, good. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. No. Go yeah, but, uh... yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to take a drink of water for that second. No, I was just going to say that uh, until Talk, which I've been asking them for years, puts um, meters, digital meters, so that I know what I'm sending on a signal. I don't know if there's silence. I don't know whether I'm not broadcasting, whether I'm not receiving. I don't know what's happening. So I'm still after them to make that level well, you change. You need a meter. I need a meter. But, you know, I mean, even in, in,
1: in ancient warfare, mm-hmm. you know, they used to put boats around castles, filled with mm-hmm. alligators. Mm-hmm. And uh, also they used to have hot oil hot grease and when people was trying to breach a wall and they was you know everybody gathered at the bottom trying so they can go up they just pull hot oil down on them mm-hmm. so all sorts yeah. of things
0: yep they had the the what was that uh the, the slingshot the one that actually uh the, the trebia or the trebinae or the catapult. I what it's called. catapult yeah but the catapult but it was a different catapult it actually had a had a weight and it accelerated it didn't just launch it was something um that actually had a rock, and it spun. It spun uh, quite a ways, but to, to launch, uh, it had a counterweight on it. It wasn't just a, a, a sling of, of uh, you know, rubber band or, or, or things like that, or, or of. Uh, but it actually had a weighted like rock.
1: Olympic, an Olympic game kind of to hammer throw.
0: Yeah, exactly. It accelerated the and made the made the the, the rocks go a whole lot further. Do you know what's interesting too? If you ever studied the history of, of the longbow and the crossbow as infantry weapons. Those were, were devastating, mm-hmm. you know, and the British longbow, British could, They
1: had uh, know, you know. torpedoes. The first torpedoes was those deals that used to skip across the water and run into the side of a ship and burn uh-huh. it. It yep. was a fireball.
0: Yeah, Greek fire. That's an ancient device, yeah. But they would skip, yeah. they would skip along, and they hit the wooden ships with uh, with these cannon shells, and uh, of course they put holes in, it, especially if they hit below the waterline or or at the waterline, the mm-hmm. ship would sink. Yeah, it's fascinating. Warfare is, is is quite fascinating. But uh, you know, me being an, an archery fan, um, you know, I've got. I, in fact, I'm waiting for my local yeah. range to get set up. But I love archery. The Romans
1: had those eighteen foot lances. Remember them? Well, I see. I'm asking you as if you were participating. But they had those lances that was about 20 feet long. Yep. And look at the damage that
0: could do. Yeah, Roman weapons were amazing, too. They had the gladius, which is the shorter sword. They had a, another one, which is a longer sword. Um, you look at uh, sword warfare is fascinating, too. We, remember we did that show on dueling? You know, so we could get rid of a lot of lawyers if we could bring back dueling. You know, not not to the death, but just a first cut. Oh, yeah. But,
1: if you, but yeah. If you've got
0: the, the, the courage of your conviction to stand up with the sword, you know, risking death potentially. Um, but uh, you believe in your, your position, if you're not willing to do for it, then uh, you are not a lot of conviction. We talked about that earlier. Mm-hmm. Let me get back to this article here. Uh, it says, this truth came to light, talking about uh, the evil. Of, we, we did this earlier in the show, contrasting the charge of the Light Brigade with Flanders Fields in terms of writing about war. Anyway, this truth came to light, back to the article, in the nonsense verse of the Dada movement and the nightmare paintings of the Surrealists who denounced the obscenities of armed conflict. Winter also notes that soldiers writing popular memoirs helped expose realities of World War I to millions back home. See, World War I was, was talked about and there were videos, uh, there were movies made of it. World War II, there was a huge amount of documentation and World war, and the Vietnam War was fought on television. And ever since television, warfare has never been the same because people have found out how bad it was before they went in. See, before the generals could brag about the glory of war and they could uh, you know, excite young men you know, before they knew better – you know, like sixteen to eighteen, and says, "Come to war. War is fabulous. We'll make a man of you. See glory. There'll be a great adventure. Talk about all the people get killed. Horrible. Couldn't do that after a while. I couldn't do that after Vietnam. Everybody knew what it looked like. That's why they get rid of the gir- uh, the draft. People saw war every night on the TV news. That had a huge effect. You know, the effect of television on war, I think, is 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 uh, for the good, because people went, oh, "I'm not going to do that." You know, and uh, it changed warfare. Here's another one too. The British... <laughs> act for, oh, yeah. Can you make a comment? Go ahead. Feel free.
1: Yeah. You, you had people that wanted to lay around and smoke pot all damn day.
0: Well, well that's, they, they were, were avoiding this. Yeah, drugs and war. That's a whole history, too. They had the, the drug problems in World War II that they had in Vietnam because World War II, the soldiers believed in what they were doing. A lot of Vietnam soldiers were drafted. It's a totally different war. You know, you've got to fight for the hearts and minds of your soldiers before you fight for the hearts and minds of another country. and I think they missed that little tidbit. Let me get you back to the article here. Uh, the British developed a knack for code-breaking World War I, particularly with encrypted German radio transmits. These advanced later led to now-famous intelligence-gathering operations such as M8, GCHQ, don't know what that is, and the NSA, that's the National Security Administration, in the United States. Then I mention the CIA? I find that interesting. He says the most famous bit of code breaking during World War I was the so-called Zimmermann telegram. German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmerman received an encrypted telegram describing plans to attack U.S. shipping lanes to the United Kingdom. The telegram also mentioned Germany's desire to ally with Mexico and have the Mexican army attack U.S. territory. This decoded telegram led the U.S. to declare war on Germany in April 1917. Now, do you think that was a real telegram or do you think that was planted? to get the United States into the war.
1: Well, Germany plotted with Mexico even during the, the, the Mexican-American War.
0: So that's that's genuine. And you, you the okay. uh-huh. Irish in New York.
1: Irish uh, in New York even <clears throat> went down to fight with Mexico. It was called St. Patrick's Brigade. That's where you get to the point where you get the blood is sticking in water and religion is sticking in
0: thoughts. Interesting. i get you a couple more here. Scientists started to better understand PTSD. Most traumatic stress disorder wasn't formally recognized until 1980, but during and after World War I, doctors began to understand and diagnose the psychological impacts of conflict in a new way, which laid the groundwork for our modern understanding. During World War I, some medics thought the physical impact of explosions caused the war neurosis so many soldiers were experiencing, and that's also known as shell shock. We now better understand, thanks largely to the efforts of doctors and scientists during World War I, that the emotional stresses of war are to blame for the symptoms shown by thousands of soldiers coming home from the battlefield. Because so many World War I-era soldiers, uh, 80,000 British soldiers, by one estimate, were experiencing these symptoms in the safe confines of their homes, scientists and doctors began looking for answers. That's interesting.
1: Hear well, that goes on. It really did go on during uh, the Vietnam era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, People were coming back uh, crazy. I, I knew at least yeah, a couple of family members and uh, neighbors. and never did get over that. One guy, uh, uh, he left and went to Vietnam. He just bought a brand-new uh, 64 Chevy Supersport convertible. Oh wow! And he went to Vietnam and came back, and uh, he just walked the streets. Never shaved. Looked like a big. Looked like a bear. Huh?
0: Yeah. No. This is, this is one of the tragedies of wars. You know, not all war. You know, it's not all people that are killed. It's not all the people that you see. Obviously, you know, uh, injured, crippled. Uh, there's a lot of you know the mental injuries, the traumatic brain injuries. It's something I looked into with a hero. I, I do a lot of uh, veteran stuff. Well, not as much as I should, but. Um, You know, the traumatic brain injuries and some of the different things that go on uh, with soldiers, PTSD, these are huge. Uh, These are real problems. And uh, it's not really dealt with. And we still have a ridiculous suicide rate, ridiculously high of soldiers. But still, I think it's 22 a day. You know, that's where people then were killed in in the conflict. So we really have to start questioning this permanent war class, you know. And uh, it's really, you know, it's up to us to tell Congress, and I tell them all the time. But uh, we need millions of people saying, stop these ridiculous wars. We are not going to be permanently at war. And you look at um, the soldiers that came back from Afghanistan and Iraq that were crippled, I, I say almost all were crippled with IEDs, improvised explosive devices. So who are we really fighting over there? You know, we were fighting to not get hit by IEDs. You know, I. So few, I mean, there were people that were shot, obviously, in its combat, but most of the people seem to me, and this is just anecdotal, this is just my observation, seem to have been crippled by explosions, by, by mine and uh, various other explosive devices. Well, how do you fight an enemy yeah, where, when you're fighting things? Little, yeah, and how do you fight an enemy where they're leaving bombs behind? It's like you can, you know, fire soldier on soldier. It's not like you have a military, you know, uh, coming up against each other on a battlefront. These things are just left there. You know, it doesn't take a lot of courage to leave something behind that can explode and run away from it and just wait and see what happens. That's you know that was one of the biggest reasons not to send our troops in. Well, Why don't you send troops in an area with improvised devices? I remember, devices? Mm-hmm.
1: I remember it, there was people in the city that was buying old cell phones.
2: Hmm. Okay.
1: I kid you not, and you know this was before. This was before one of those conflicts over there. So we're talking about, just so see, you had the last Gulf War. This was around the early Gulf War period, or even okay. before that. It was buying old cell phones. You know how to use those to trigger.
0: Well, I don't know how they button. do it, but I know they can. I'm not sure how it's called. They call it up or something, or, or what does it
1: Yeah, you call a number. And okay. they use the circuitry to trigger a detonator device. A smaller one, which triggers the larger bomb. Okay. But honest to goodness, there was there was people used to be in their cars and they have a sign-up, we would buy your old cell phone.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I always wonder. And, and you know at the time when you said you don't give it a second thought, but mm-hmm. now you see how things was used and you say, you know, when I remember people were selling, buying your old cell phones. You could take another the old Nokia and uh, Maybe even the flip phones, especially those old Nokia phones that look like uh, about the size of a uh, two packs of gum, mm-hmm. and they would buy them. So you wonder what – I mean, what was that all about, and how did it mm-hmm. correlate with their usage that was uh, cell phones were being used in the detonating the roadside bombs?
0: Well, it makes sense. Now, if you use a cell phone in a bomb, do you have to have the cell phone as part of the bomb? Does it have to be wired into the the detonation device, or can it be a remote thing? It has to be on the bomb itself, right?
1: Yeah, the ringer, the ringer with the ringer, because it takes more power to ring a ringer than it does to operate the phone, and that's what they do. They call the phone.
0: Okay, and the circuitry they 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 connect the electric circuitry of the phone to the electric detonating device of, of the bomb. So the detonating
1: called- device of the bomb. Yes.
0: So these, these, aren't, uh, these aren't explosive devices with a remote fuse just waiting, like a mine, waiting for a ship to come by. There's people actually watching these things and knowing the numbers. They're, they're watching, watching them from distance. a distance, absolutely. And and, oh, I see how it works. See, I didn't know that. That's the same thing. So what is it about our military that they kept doing this? Why would, this is almost like World War I. You know, if you know that these improvised explosive devices are out there, that if, if people are watching from a distance with phones, why would you send people down the main roads? Why wouldn't you send people down it was, a place? It was in,
1: it, in the beginning. Because later on they used to put jamming devices, you know, in those areas, and even in some protest areas, you can't use your phone because they got jamming devices on your signal.
0: Okay. Like that
1: one. That's the the market opening. So.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Do you have another? Do you have your computer going? Do you want to do some trading? I mean, I I can I can handle the last half hour, but uh, do do you have work to do?
1: Yeah, I gotta go. it, but uh, I really, uh, I, you know, you got some shows like the one with Brianna, that the young lady, the, the uh, high schooler, and the, yeah, I really got a kick out of Wendy and the scientists. Now that you, the science teacher that you have coming on, then also on the Fridays when you have uh, DC group and you have very interesting group. There's room for more.
0: Oh yeah, well that's the thing. They're very well. You're interesting too. I mean, you're a huge part of this show. I love the fact that you call in every day, or almost every day, or whenever you can, and stick around and give us as much time as you can. I couldn't do the show without you, quite frankly. You know, it would not be the same show. I'd just be talking to myself here. And I know people are listening because our listenership's expanding. You know, we have uh, we're getting huge growth in Australia, Canada, uh, and uh, the United Kingdom. You know, so we're getting a lot of uh, of extra listeners. We're getting new countries. Sri Lanka listens. The Solomon Islands, New Caledonia, have listeners to action radio. Armenia, little places in the world are listening. I just wish we were in Taiwan. They're probably from Taiwan, mm-hmm. though, the Chinese, because we used to be in Taiwan. Um, but, uh, yeah. yeah, it's fascinating how it goes. Okay, well, I'm going to continue. i got maybe uh, one or two more of these articles to do. Uh, I want to finish this one. Uh, do you have another minute, or do you got to go? Yeah, go
1: ahead. Let's go for it.
0: So this one is – States an economic powerhouse. This is prior to World War One, the U.S. was merely a better country, huh, like we are now. That changed with World War One in a big way. Hugh uh, Rockoff, R.O.C.K.O.F.F. of Rutgers University, it's an interesting name, uh, says the turnaround was dramatic. The U.S. emerged from the Great War as a net as net creditors to the tune of six point four billion dollars, which of course today would be you know. Billions and billions of dollars. This later led to New York being considered the de facto financial capital of the world, a spot previously held by London. Rockoff also says that World War I taught the federal government how to play an important positive role in the economy. Well, I would question that. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a decidedly negative role in the economy. but it's a, I would say it's a big role in the economy. Anyway, it puts to good use in the Great Depression. Well, I would disagree with that too. But it's interesting that uh, the, the government – you know, because uh, World War One, the, the the European countries were devastated, Russia included, Russia, Germany, France, uh, England, um, and later Spain in World War Two. They're all devastated by war. And World War Two, these countries were devastated. Japan, you know, China, we're all devastated by World War Two. So it seems like twice in history we've come in at the end of the war and we have the the biggest economy. I mean, world war is actually good for the United States if you want to be purely callous about it and give it uh, an objective economic look that uh, our economy tends to improve, you know, with the factories left after the rest of the world's at war because their territory gets destroyed, but ours doesn't. That's interesting. I didn't know what happened in World War One. also.
1: Well, United States have never had those type wars on its soil, but America was so great at that because of its uh – Mm-hmm. mechanization the ability of it to well, you know you came out with the three automobile makers then you had the airplane you know you the united states has done a tremendous thing with its manufacturer of aircraft mm-hmm. and those true. individuals whether it was your Lockheed your and uh, those guys you know even the what was it, the stealth bomber that didn't fly so mm-hmm. we've had some people in this country who have had some Highly innovative mind. Weston House, your Tesla, your Ford, your, your Rockefeller groups. It's just mm-hmm. tremendous.
0: The computer guys, uh, Jobs and Wozniak, you know, the Wright brothers. Yeah, uh, There's and a lot of – uh, con-
1: yeah. yeah. mm-hmm. Some of Action those guys radio. done those inventions in their garage.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, did you ever see that commercial? There's a commercial on that too. The computer was invented in a garage. The airplane was invented in a garage. they failed to say it was white guys (laughs) because that would be politically incorrect
1: I knew Uh, I
0: knew when I was
1: you know one of my former his son is actually Mm -hmm. his son-in-law and another guy they were experimenting with making wafers in his garage using Mm -hmm. these chemicals that was burning them up you know yeah but Mm -hmm.
0: uh, I mean if I had a garage action radio might have started a garage I'm the only one here so I started you know in my main room (laughs) So, you know, this is, you know, same with my computer and my microphone. My there a lot of these
1: were workshops where a lot of experiments went on, and that's good. Yeah.
0: You don't it have good. Base. No, but we have a sort of innovation. You know, America prides itself on individuality, individual achievement. Most nations don't do that. You know, there's a reason that the United States has most of the Nobel Prizes for, uh, you know, chemistry, physics, uh, uh, industry, writing, and things like that, because we have innovative people. We, we pride ourselves on being innovative, but they don't so much now. The Marxists, as the Marxists take over, they're breeding out our innovation. But those of us in our generation, you know, we are inventors. We That's are creators. Right. Yeah. Action, you know, Action Radio, you know, I, I, you know mm-hmm. it was, Action Radio was created in the United States you know, in, a, in a U.S. environment of, uh, of creativity. And this is one, this is my, my creation. So, so people are creating things all the time. You know, your local donut shop that comes up with a better donut, you know your local uh, anything, some computer program that has a new way of doing things. The internet was an American invention. Uh, came to the de- defense department. You know, the, phone, was, uh, the light bulb. When I was you in know, school,
1: we, we was fracking all. Uh-huh. You know that we we had a science class, science uh, science hour, uh, uh-huh. where we had uh, uh, apparatus that would frack all. Take all huh. turns of gasoline, fuel.
0: Yeah, you mean refine oil? They don't do they, that. They, they weren't fracking oil. it. That they is were tragic. Re- yeah, they're refining it. Well, they don't teach science in schools. They teach uh, social theory. They don't teach history in school. They teach social studies. They don't they teach. Uh, it's, it's a socialist government indoctrination. They don't teach things that kids need to know. You know, I mean, all the, all the stuff we talk about, this is part of the reason I talk about this stuff on the show, to expose people to things that uh, they might never have been exposed to. In this case, World War I. You know, that's what this day is. This day is the end of World War I. That's why I'm talking about this. Everybody else will talk about Veterans Day and more power to them. That's absolutely fine, but I need to talk about World War One because it's not being talked about.
1: Yeah, we had uh, home economics where the, the girls would bake cakes, bake uh, rolls, and I, I mean, it was just tremendous—the things that we had. Yeah, let me tell you about that. That's learned. interesting.
0: We had the first class, you know, my class in junior high I, uh, when I came. It was, the, I think, uh, the second year. It was, it was ninth grade. Uh, and that was the first year that the – no, yeah, because the ninth grade was still in junior high. But that was the year that uh, the, the guys took home ec and, and, and uh, the women were in shop. So, they, so they, uh, they actually traded. It hadn't been done before. So they said, oh, we, you know, so, so it was like a dare. I think it was about the time that Bobby Riggs was playing Billie Jean King in tennis, where Bobby Riggs said, men can always beat women in tennis. And he was this old guy, right? I mean, we knew he was going to lose. But, uh, yeah, women, men are always better. So, of course, Billie Jean King is young and healthy and a you know, world-class tennis player. And Bobby Riggs is an older, has-been tennis guy. Of course, he was going to lose. But that wasn't the point. He was having fun with it. But because of that, men and women started doing different things. So we had the guys taking cooking classes and the home ec classes. And we had uh, the women taking uh, wood shop, metal shop, things like that. It was really great. You know, it was a fun time. We
1: had, uh, I went to a technical high school. Mm-hmm. We had auto mechanics body mechanics we had aeromechanics they had real planes in there that people were working on avionics wow
2: that's
1: Orson, great sheet metal electricity uh-huh. pre-med nursing
0: you know was like all high school all O'Fallon high school yeah what was it called i'm sorry i interrupted Old Fallon thick interesting yeah it, it'd be nice if all high schools had a technical component to them you know, so people could learn these things and try them, or at least one high school in town had it. And if people wanted to go there, they could. Let me give you another uh, thing here. World War I saved BP and helped usher the age of oil. BP is British Petroleum. Before World War One, British Petroleum was known as Anglo-Persian Oil Company. I didn't know that. At the time, the company wasn't very successful. In fact, it wasn't for Winston Churchill's if it wasn't for, if it weren't for, if it wasn't for Winston Churchill's decision to build faster warships that ran on oil instead of coal, BP might have gone bankrupt. That's interesting. Instead, the oil industry flourished thanks largely to the World War I. Oil became incredibly important to keeping the newly mechanized style of warfare going. Protecting oil supplies became a huge part of the strategy of warfare, just as it is today. That's why we have a Strategic Petroleum Reserve, folks. And the fact that Brandon's, you know, totally destroying it um, for the efforts to, uh, to to try and win the election and, and make his economy look better while cutting off the supply at the other end, this is interesting. So well,
1: Anglo, Persian was actually that was, that's Iran, and we gave them or showed them the technology for drilling. Uh
0: huh. Well, Aramco is another one, the Arab American Oil Company. That's that's another huge thing. That was so later. The British. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and I'm not sure of the history, but yeah. So, so the Anglo-Persian Oil Company uh, started uh, after World War One. That,
1: that was early
0: on. When was the Ramco? Mm-hmm. Was it before World War Two or after World War Two?
1: It I, it had to be before it had to be before World War Two, around uh-huh. that period of time. huh. Oh yeah, way before World War Two. You're talking about going back in the early 1900s.
0: Okay, i was just curious because you know what stopped the German the Germans in World War II was it was their fuel supply was cut off. The Ploesti mm-hmm. oil fields in Romania, remember that? And you know, there's another one. Mm-hmm. There was an, a there was a Russian oil field. It was it was South Russia. In fact, that's one of the reasons that uh, Hitler lost. Uh, the he turned Hitler turned from uh, destroying the Russian oil fields in, in southern Russia, probably around Ukraine, you know, or south there. Uh, the Ploesti was Romania. I remember that. And there was another big oil field in Russia. Uh, it's like a 2 syllable word. I can't think of it right now. Anyway, uh, but uh, Hitler-Turner, went, he wanted to go for Moscow, and he wanted to go for uh, uh, Leningrad, which I think was St. Petersburg now. Um, and because of that strategy, the Russians kept all their fuel, kept the tanks going, their T-34 tanks, you know, which was a better tank than the, than the German you know, Tiger – well, not the Tiger, but German, the, the standard German Panzer tank. Uh, of course, our tanks sucked <laughs> because they used gasoline, and they were thin, and the guns weren't powerful enough. No, the thing
1: is that Sherman, uh, Germany had, had with them big 80 guns, 80 millimeter
0: guns. And oh yeah, almost a monster. Ours so are what, 60? I mean, our cannons were not big enough on our Sherman tanks. They just weren't. You know, And because they used gasoline, they were highly flammable. German tanks, Russian tanks always used diesel. Diesel is much less flammable. Anyway, it's interesting. Yes. Oil played a, played a huge part in the war. But Germany was, the, the, the Luftwaffe especially, was cut off and they ran out of fuel. That's what they tried, which is good. But they also. Didn't Remember the V-1 and the V-2? Those, ran on, on, those were liquid-fueled rockets. Fascinating, the words analogy. Modern surgery, the next headline. Modern surgery was born in World War I. Journalist Paul Benkeman argues that surgery, as we know it, was born during World War I. Fighting in the trenches led to many soldiers needing reconstructive facial surgery using skin grafts. Yeah, because of the artillery. So-called broken faces even had a union to support them. The Union de Blesse de la Fesse et de la tête, that's face and the head, association of wounded to the face and the head. Oh, there we go. There's a translation. Thank you. Advanced is made while working in the broken faces led to later revolutions in the fields of oral, male, uh, maxiofacial, and plastic surgery. That's really interesting because World War, the Civil War, when they learned about infections and when they did amputations and things like that, that's when they first discovered infections. They started boiling water and, you know, boiling the surgical instruments, if I remember. Uh, and World War One, it looks like they, they did reconstructive surgery. Yeah, the broken faces the didn't work properly. Uh, and then they stopped wearing the helmets, and then the artillery shells rained down these guys, and they, literally there is a society of broken faces. That's what they called them in World War One. <laughs> the next one's funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, any comments on surgery, or shall I move on?
1: No, go on. I'm getting ready to cut out, but the –
0: well, you, you have a nice weekend
1: one. and be safe.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll listen to the podcast then. This is World War One popularized, popularized condoms, at least in the UK. <laughs> I've got to read this one. This is hysterical. Uh, all right, Pian. Absolutely. I feel
1: like you great.
0: Okay. Thanks very much. You take care. So here we go. World War One popularized condoms, at least in the UK. Surgeon Sage says, only a poor boob pays his money, loses his watch gets the syph, that's S-Y-P-H, that's syphilis, and brags that he's had a good time. Yeah, don't be a poor boob. This is a few of the many common ailments suffered by World War I soldiers were STDs. Who knew, right? I think it's 5%. Wow, that's pretty high. 5% of British and Empire soldiers suffer from VD. Those would be venereal disease, diseases, what we now call you know, STDs or sexually transmitted diseases. I think it's a new term, too. Uh, I forgot what it's called, but anyway, this this is a new term. Anyway, it says, and the U.S. Army discharged more than 10,000 men because of STDs. That's a loss of an enlistment of 7 million man days, however they calculate that. Uh, Men often visited local brothels to try to escape the horrors of battle. That makes sense. The U.K. decided to do something about it in 1917 and began issuing condoms to troops. Historian A.J.P. Taylor credits this with making condoms popular in the U.K. The U.S. was not quite as proactive. They issued a prophylactic kit meant to treat certain STDs after contraction. It wasn't until World War II that the U.S. distributed condoms to the soldiers. I always remember that famous scene in uh, there was a movie, The Big Red One. Lee Marvin uh, plays a platoon commander. He's got uh, four four young guys with him, and they go all the way through World War II. And, and one scene, I think, in Normandy or, or somewhere, they have to do a landing. And, of course, they have to put their condoms over their M1 Garand rifles. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Oh, here's another one. Kotex seconds were invented by Red Cross nurses during World War I. More things I didn't know. American company Kimberly Clark developed a super absorptive, absorptive, absorptive uh, cotton alternative called cell, cotton in 1914. Once the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, Kimberly-Clark increased production of the material for use as surgical dress on the front line. So the, what kind of material for surgical dress? This is interesting. Red Cross nurses working on battlefields recognized another use for it as maxi pads. When World War I ended, Kimberly-Clark repurchased the surplus cell U cotton from the military and started producing Kotex cotton texture sanitary towels in 1920. Interesting. Wireless technology. That's radios. Wireless technology developed rapidly during World War One. Modern smartphones and wireless headsets owe a lot to the technological innovation in World War One. Transmitter and receiver technology improved significantly during the conflict and required far less power than before. Using wireless sets, without wires, wireless, okay, sets to triangulate signals and locate enemy radios was another major innovation. That's where triangulation comes from, right? You have two, uh, two stations send out a signal where those signals cross, that's where, the, uh, that's where the enemy is, right? Wireless didn't necessarily mean portable. However, in 1916, wireless communication sets for airplanes weighed 300 pounds. <laughs> yeah, they're better. So that's where your phones come from. It's interesting. Oh, here we go. Pilates was invented inside a World War I internment camp. Interesting. The wildly popular 21st century exercise routine known as Pilates developed during World War I. The man behind the fitness craze known as Pilates, makes sense, German boxer and bodybuilder Joseph Hubertus Pilates, developed his method while in a British internment camp during World War I. Joseph Pilates used springs and straps from the beds, which later developed into spring-based equipment used in Pilates today. This is fascinating, right? After World War One, Joseph Pilates returned to Germany for a few years and further further developed his exercise regimen before moving to New York in 1925. Smart man, and opened up his first body controlling, uh, contrology body contrology studio with his wife Clara. That's great. All these things. So wartime, you know, for all the destruction of war, it's also when some of our greatest innovations are made. So what we want to do is, is gear up so we make these innovations and not have to uh, have more uh, where all these resources get put to uh, good use in terms of uh, developments in technology. listen, Here's the next one. World War I added many words and phrases to the English language. Oh, here we go. <laughs> World War I either spawned or popularized dozens of English words and phrases still widely used today. <laughs> A new term for lice, chow for food, to scrounge, to search and pilfer, and fed up to be disgusted with it all, uh, all day from World War I as well as British-based Great War, the Americans preferred World War. There is also cannon fodder, cushy, foxholes, zeroing in, and dud, which is an unexploded incendiary device prior to its use in World War II. Atomic bomb was coined in 1914 by author H.G. Wells. I didn't know that. Flamethrowers were developed during World War I. Yeah, these are really disgusting. World War I marked the first time modern firepower was used on the battlefield. The Germans used flamethrowers in more than 300 battles, uh, flushing enemies out of trenches and burning them alive or scarring them for life. The flame, the Flammenwerfer, Warfer, that's a German design, Flammenwerfer, F-L-A-M-M-E-N-W-E-F-E-R, design proved so effective that the British and the French started using them. Their use was limited, however. The fuel only lasted about two minutes and the weapon's range was limited to 20 yards. Yeah, that changed during World War II, big time. Aircraft carriers were developed during World War One. This I did know. Uh, during World War One, the British squadron commander, Edwin Dunning, uh, was the first person to ever land a plane on a moving ship, which was an aircraft carrier. He landed on the HMS Furious, a 786-foot-long battle cruiser, on August 2nd of 1917. Dunning also successfully in a second landing on the Furious five days there, but his engine choked on his third attempt, and his plane crashed off the starboard bow, uh, ending him. Yeah, Air Sea Rescue wasn't that developed yet. The Furious was also used in World War II before being split scrap in 1948. Yeah, the first American to land on a ship actually happened in San Francisco Bay. I know this was my tour uh, in San Francisco. Eugene Eli landed on a battleship that they had a wooden deck built. was that World War I. In fact, I think it might have been 1919 or 1920. But uh, that's how we start with aircraft carriers. And, of course, they were made great use of uh, in World War II. And now, because the missiles, I think are largely um, obsolete. Oh, that was controversial. Yeah, well, we'll talk. Call me up. 215-383-3832. I'm the only one here right now. Just me. Here's another one. Artificial nitrates used as explosives in World War I are still used today in agriculture. Developed artificial nitrates to create explosives shortly before World War I because their natural nitrate source, Chilean guano deposits, that's poop, <laughs> was in short supply. This innovation was lethal during World War One but now helps to sustain one-third of the Earth's population as ammonia nitrate fertilizer. Uh, That's also the bomb used at Oklahoma City. Uh, Whether, in fact, it actually destroyed the Murrah Building or demolition charges destroyed it's still a matter of contention. But there was an AMFO. If you heard of an AMFO bomb, it's an ammonia nitrate fertilizer bomb. It's also explosive. Back to the article. Converting atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia, essentially out of thin air, using only high pressure and high temperatures, prolonged the conflict for years. This process, slightly tweaked, also happens to make an excellent fertilizer. Cool, that's interesting. Bombs and fertilizer. Well, that, that is interesting, okay? Fritz Haber, a German chemist who developed this process, won the Nobel Prize in 1918 as, as a result. This is the person that Pianchi talked about earlier. Haber also con- is, is also considered the optical warfare for his pioneering work in weaponizing gas. Yeah, and also the poison gas, Zyklon B, that was used in World War II for the Holocaust. Uh, that may have been a Haber invention. I'm not sure. But uh, poison gas, mustard gas, a couple of different gases used in World War One. Mustard gas is the one we know uh, the best. Here's another one. Doctors began to connect vitamin D with sunlight during World War One. Vitamin D is one of the best preventions for COVID, by the way, uh, and a bunch of other ailments. Uh, but they knew about this a long time ago, but doctors don't tell you now because they want to sell you vaccines and get a, you know, potential injury and death. That's just my cynicism coming out. Back to the article, the winter of 1918 was a rough time for children in Berlin. Due to undernourishment brought, about, brought on by the impact of World War One. half of the kids in Berlin had rickets, a disease that made bones soft and deformed. Kurt Haldczynski, a doctor in the city, performed some experiments and made the connection between ultraviolet light and the strength of bones. Scientists later discovered that vitamin D is used by. Build up on with calcium, a process triggered by ultraviolet light from the sun or from certain lamps. Yeah, you can also take vitamin D uh, extra supplements. So if you're in a cloudy area, or if you're in uh, some kind of uh, you know l- lessened sunlight, or if you're sensitive to sun like me, a little extra vitamin D, you know, and some calcium. Blue surgical scrubs were developed during World War One. Have you ever wondered why surgeons almost always wear blue scrubs? The idea was the brainchild of French physician Rene Lariche during World War One had the idea to differentiate as aseptic clothes and sheets from potentially bacteria-laden items while volunteering with the French army in August of 1914. The idea caught on, and surgeons today still sport the blue scrubs, although green scrubs scrubs also became a thing uh, in the 1960s. Uh, Was the last one? Here's, here's the last one. Uh, soy sausages were invented during World War I to fight starvation. Here you go. Vegetarians have World War I and the creeping effects of starvation to thank for soy sausage. Yeah, meat alters. That gives bugs. I'm sorry, bugs, bugs are going to happen. Soy sausages, most of soy is genetically modified. It's a GMO, like soy food. Uh, they, they are the mayor of Germany, and later the first German chancellor after World War II, Conrad Adenauer, made sausages out of soy to prevent the residents of a city from starving during the British blockade of Germany. He called it Friedenswurst, or peace sausage. That's interesting. Oddly enough, Adenauer couldn't get the soy sausage patented in Germany because it was meatless. <laughs> Britain granted a patent in 1918. That's fascinating. I've got one more for for you. I've got like three more articles. So I'm not going to do all three today. But I want to do the end of World War I. How did it end? Say this. Sorry. Um, but then I'll tell you about how World War One ended, and that will sum up our discussion today uh, of World War I. Let me see what I did yet. What haven't I played yet? Yeah, so let's just get do this here, do this. I'm working with my, uh, my. I'm I gotta find my my stuff here. So let's let's play. I haven't played that. I haven't played this. Here we go. Be right back in just a bit. From addiction to achievement, that is the story of Mike Lindell. It started with my pillow, and now goes to my coffee. Action Radio is proud to be an affiliate of MyPillow. Our discount code is the same for all our product affiliates, W-Y-L, which stands for Write Your Laws. Pillow pillows are guaranteed the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own. Action Radio is guaranteed to be the most controversial show you will ever hear. Check out their products with our discount code at mypillow.com slash W-Y-L. That's mypillow.com slash W-Y-L. Or order now by calling 1-800-544-8939. That's 1-800-544-8939. Sleep well so you can wake up and hear Action Radio live. This is Greg Penglis for Strikeforce, your source for pure energy. Strikeforce is a concentrated energy drink that turns a half liter of your favorite beverage into an energy drink. You make your energy drink yourself. Action Radio is an affiliate of Strikeforce, so our listeners get a 20% discount. All you do is add our code, W-Y-L, to the discount code window at checkout. Hello everyone, it's that time of year again, so here is just a friendly little message from your Action Radio revolutionaries. In preparation for Christmas and New Year's, we have just a few ideas and suggestions to make your holiday complete. Granted, these are times of adversity brought about by bureaucrats in what we affectionately call the leftist lockdown orgasmic power trip. But don't let a completely illegal, martial law-style abdication and removal of your constitutional rights get in the way of a decent glass of eggnog with friends. After all, six-foot social distancing is a completely false concept for a virus that can linger in the air for hours in aerosol form, can be sneezed well over 200 feet, can travel through an entire 10-story building central air system in a couple of minutes and goes through a mask like a mosquito through a chain-link fence. So, no matter what you do, everyone is getting exposed sometime. Leaving the healthy people alone accomplishes this in about 10 weeks. So, this should have been done the end of May. Speaking of masks, besides being a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights against seizure of your person, in this case, your face, without due process, the state can't make you wear a mask. So, Go home if you're sick, but if not, go free phase, as all real Americans are doing, and enjoy the Christmas season. Apparently, there is a deplorable lack of New Year's resolutions this year. Well, I have one, hmm, to resist. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to restore and rejuvenate that inner rugged individual the left has tried so hard to put behind a mask and lockdown, and I'm going to resist. So, you find a creative way to resist, there's your Revolution Resolution. Remember, folks, those Twilight Zone episodes where people wore masks? They were supposed to make you think, not make you copy them. Family values should be emphasized this Christmas with the traditions that bind us together. Sit as close as you can at dinner. Remember those wet kisses from Grandma when you were a kid? Engage in spirited debates. Don't forget to use serving dishes where everyone sticks their own personal fork and spoon in, all in the interest of sharing. Remind everyone that closing churches violates the First Amendment, closing businesses without criminal convictions violates our Fifth Amendment right to life, liberty, and property, and closing schools denies our kids their right to an education. So, you may want to point that out to your governors and mayors this festive season so they understand their transgressions and can repent. I would have suggested you go to New York this year, but quite frankly, they don't have the balls to celebrate New Year's. (laughs) No, really, the ball isn't dropping. Maybe we should rename Times Square Tiananmen Square West. Remember that there are many great gifts you can share this Christmas, particularly AR-15s and AK-47s. Those tend to warm the heart. As we say at Action Radio, world peace through strength. Just remember that everything the government tells you is wrong. So if you want to avoid COVID, don't take the vaccine. Go to the beach instead. Get that sunshine and vitamin D. Stay away from home. Engage in commerce and business. Travel as much as you can. Work out at crowded gyms. Drive extensively, preferably with the windows open. Patronize businesses that are in open rebellion. And resist, resist, resist the Dr. dictatorship. In closing, let me just say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and Happy Hanukkah. Muslims, you don't have a holiday at this time, so just go eat Chinese food on Christmas Eve and meet some really nice Jewish folks. Hey, they might be your neighbors. This is Greg Penglis for Action Radio. Action Radio. Dedicated to fixing everything. I really do have to make more of those. There was a really creative period I went through uh, during the lockdowns. And so from March to uh, like November of 2020 is when most of those things were made. Uh, the new normal church and grocery store, you know, Chaz, the, 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 the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, um, the, the Black Lives Matter, you know, January white sale selling white people. Um, I can play that through January. <laughs> so You know, I mean, uh, we are so far outside of, of, of what you would call pro- political correctness. The only thing that saves us is the fact that we're so censored by big tech uh, uh, censorship that a lot of folks haven't discovered. Although really, cool, uh, they will. And that's when the real trouble really starts. All right. So I found this is from the BBC. Uh, so this is a British Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, news round. How did World War I come to an end? And this is written the 9th of November 2018. <clears throat> See if I can find an author. I guess they don't have an author. It's a BBC production. This is World War I was the first war that truly affected the whole world. It started in 1914 and ended in 1918. let just double check that I'm broadcasting here. Yeah, okay. I just, yeah, know, i paranoid, but again, no levels. World War I started in 1914 and ended in 1918. It was fought on battlefields across the world between the Triple Entente. That's Great Britain, France, and Russia, and a group of countries made up of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and other powers like Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire. As the war continued, other countries joined in on both sides, and the fighting didn't just take place in the trenches in Europe, but also in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. It became known as the Great War because it affected people all over the world and was the biggest war ever known. New weapons and technologies were used that enabled new ways of fighting, which caused destruction on a scale that had never been seen before. Millions of people, both soldiers and ordinary citizens, lost their lives as a result of the fighting. On, 11, on the 11th of November, 1918, the guns fell silent and World War I came to an end. This year, we remember 100 years since this happened. So this would have been uh, November 2018. Uh, so yeah, so we're, it's 104 years uh, since World War I. It was November 11th, which is today. That's why we're doing this today. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, how did World War I come to an end? In April 1917, the U.S. declared war on Germany. American troops went into action just over a year later, on the side of the Triple Entente, Germany and its allies knew that they had to launch a big offensive if they were to win the war before too many U.S. troops arrived, as they were a very powerful nation. That would be us. This is, this is from the BBC. This is British, British writing here. It says not only that, but the American troops retired from years of fighting, like everybody else was. That's another reason for us not to have been there. They were exhausted. They'd lost millions of people. That war was going to end uh, at some point soon anyway. The only only question was how it was going to end. The worst possible way to end it was the way it ended. When we sent our troops in, uh, tipped the balance, made Germany lose instead of all the nations just exhausting themselves and going home, which is what they should have done. But that's not how it worked out. Article says the German soldiers attempted to push Britain and its allies back with a series of offensive uh, or attacks. But on the 8th of August, 1918, the French and British armies launched a 100 days offensive counterattack, which pushed the Germans back. By the end of August, there were over 1.4 million American troops in France and Germany, and its allies were completely overwhelmed. Not only that, but German citizens back home were suffering from the food shortages and illnesses and started to rebel. There were strikes and demonstrations in the capital of Berlin. By the autumn of 1918, Germany and its allies realized it was no longer possible to win the war. Those fighting alongside Germany started to withdraw from the war, and by the start of November, Germany was fighting alone. See, again, this is why we should not have entered the war, because the nations would have realized it was futile at some point, hopefully, and did what uh, these other nations did. They just left. They left the war and went home. That was the smart thing to do. Back to the article. They could not win. The leaders of the German army told the German government to end the fighting should have done that three years previously but again they didn't the government asked the u.s for an agreement to stop the fighting and germany's leader kaiser wilhelm left his job on the 9th of november 1918 two days later germany signed the armistice with and the guns fell silent so it took two days to stop this war two days I mean, think about that. The government asked the U.S. for an armistice. It's interesting they asked the United States. I guess we were the dominant power at that point in the war. An agreement to stop the fighting, and Germany's leader, Kaiser Wilhelm, left his job on the 9th of November, 1918. Two days later, two days later, right? Germany was silent. The fighting stopped at 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month. And then it says, what happened when the war ended? Across the U.K., there were huge parties in the streets uh, as Big Ben, which had silenced during the war, rang out once more. But despite the celebrations, there there was deep sadness. No conflict before World War I had been so devastating. Most families in the U.K. had lost someone they loved. Millions of soldiers and ordinary citizens had lost their lives, and many more came home by injuries or mental trauma. Next one, why was there another world war? After the war, Britain, France, and the U.S. wanted to ensure that there was peace for a long time. They met up to decide how they could do this, but Germany, Austria, and Hungary were not invited. Yeah, that was dumb. Once they had made up their minds, they invited the other country leaders to meet them in Versailles in France, where they were presented with an agreement called the Treaty of Versailles. Germany was shocked by how strict the treaty was. For example, it said that it had to accept total blame for starting the war. That's not true. Right? It also demanded huge costs and repayments called reparations to be used to help rebuild civilian areas after the devastation. Well, Germany was devastated too, right? But many experts now say that these costs were, were, were for far higher for, than Germany could ever pay. Let me say that again. But many experts now say that these costs were far higher than Germany could ever pay. Not meeting these payments caused many people lots of problems in the following years. It has also been argued the results of penalties put on Germany in this treaty contributed to the causes of World War II. I agree completely. That's basically it. Um, so that's that article. I've got another one I could do. This, this, well, I'm kind of inspired now. This is a, this is one more here. This the the British. Um, I'll, just, I'll take a look. See if I want to do this one today too. Palestine and Britain: Forgotten Legacy of World War One that devastated the Middle East. Yeah, I'm feeling kind of inspired. I like to do complete shows. I like to have shows where. You know everything that's uh, supposed to be in a show is in a show, so you can listen when you want. Take a break, uh, do whatever um, to uh, to listen to bits and pieces. This one's from a website called The Conversation. I have not read this article. Uh, it hit upon me about five minutes before the show. I should look into what happened in the Middle East. So this I'll be reading this fresh uh, with you guys. Palestine and Britain: Forgotten Legacy of World War One that devastated the Middle East. And this was written on November twelfth, twenty eighteen. So this is the day after the anniversary. Um, of world war one ended this is for those of us of an age who only peace in western europe the this the centenary in other words the 100 years of the end of world war one is an opportunity to learn something of the extreme consequences of the failure to solve political differences peacefully and when the world marked the 100th anniversary of the armistice millions fell silent to remember the pain and sacrifice of that conflict but another anniversary that fell this year, that of the end of the British mandate for Palestine in 1948, a seminal moment in the conflict that continues to this day, has been largely ignored or should not be. Britain's role was pivotal, and if it is forgotten in the UK, it is remembered in the Middle East. Yes, yeah, much forgotten here, too, in the United States. Uh, another reason I like to uh, go over these, these facts of history from different perspectives. In other words, other nations. Article says, for one of the consequences of the end of World War I was the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. The December before the armistice in November 1918, troops under the command of General Sir Edmund Allenby, nicknamed the Bull, captured Jerusalem. After the end of the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations, that was Woodrow Wilson's idea, stupid as it was, the League of Nations mandated, in other words, handed over what was then Palestine to British rule. That rule lasted until 1948. Then the British withdrew. The region's Jewish and Arab populations were left to fight it out. The Jewish forces prevailed, and in May 1948, the State of Israel was declared. The conflict is remembered by Israelis as the war, for, war of Independence, by the Palestinians as al-Nakba, the catastrophe. In Britain, after a period during which the purpose of the mandate was never entirely clear to most of those serving in Palestine, as Naomi Shepherd put in her 1999 book, Plowing Sand, British Rule in Palestine, is barely remembered at all. I haven't decided what I'm for or against this article yet. Well, I'm going to continue further, but it seems to be making sense so far. Uh, it says, in a sense, this is all the more surprising because of the scale of British involvement. The numbers are staggering today. The National Army Museum website gives a figure of 100,000 British troops in Palestine in 1947. Remember, this is two years after they would fought World War II. So, I mean, I didn't know they had 100,000 British troops left over, but they did. Apparently they did. 100,000 British troops in Palestine in 1947, compared to a total of 78,000 fully trained troops in the entire British Army in 2017. Well, there you go. In another sense, it is not. The task faced by the mandate authorities was not easy. They left the region riven by conflict, which continues to this day. Seeking international Jewish support during World War One, Britain had <laughs> the words of the late historian Eric Hobsbawm incautiously and ambiguously promised to establish a national home for the Jews in Palestine. The Balfour Declaration, that's B-A-L-F-O-U-R, declaration, as the pledge was known, was made in 1917. Its centenary in, in 2017 was, a barely noticeable, was barely noticeable compared to the attention the armistice had generated. Like the end of the mandate, the Balfour Declaration in the country Britain has mostly preferred to forget. The same cannot be said in the land that was Mandate Palestine. It says, no brass bands, the next section. As a correspondent newly arrived in Gaza to take up posting during the Second Palestinian Intifada, or the uprising against Israel, I was soon welcomed by an elderly resident of a refugee camp. Oh, you have yeah, a first-hand account here. is kind of interesting. I get rid of a pop-up thing here. Let's see if we can... Okay, good. And then chastised by the same gentleman for the Balfour Declaration. The year was 2002, but he traced his wretched fate, his breeze-blocked house, had just been demolished by the Israeli army, to that document from 1917. In his memoir, Ever the Diplomat, the former British ambassador to Israel, Shepard Cowper-Coles, recalled an encounter where he witnessed between the then-Israeli prime minister, Ariel Sharon, and the British Middle East envoy, Lord Levy, or Levy, I guess it's Levy. An increasingly undiplomatic exchange ended when Sharon's massive fist came thumping down on the table as he shouted, "The British mandate is over." It is hard to imagine now, but when the mandate did end in 1948, it was a huge story in the British press. Research from my book, headlines from my book, and then we we'll the author's book. Obviously, I got a link to that. Headlines from the Holy Land reporting the Israeli-Palestinian conflict led me to archive newspaper articles where the first draft of the history of that era was written. The morning that British rule ended, May 14th, 1948, the Daily Mirror did its best to rouse patriotic pride. When British rule began, says the colonial office, Palestine was primitive and underdeveloped. The population of 750,000 were disease-ridden and poor, but new methods of farming were introduced, medical services provided, roads and railways built, water supplies improved, malaria wiped out. Isn't that big of the British? <laughs> this is by Beth daily editor and general manager that's oh, that she has a message Uh, who wrote this article seeing it back up again i think it was uh conversation (laughs) apparently the authors are they're talking about their book anyway let me see if i can finish we're almost done here Uh, So so this is worth looking into. I have to look more into this history here. It says, the next day's Daily Mail painted the stirring picture of the weather-beaten, sun-dried Union Jack, which had flown over British headquarters in Jerusalem, being brought back to the Airways Terminal Building at Victoria in central London. That's the train station. Where the story has found its way into contemporary newspapers, it has had a fraction of the attention granted to the end of World War I in Europe. A lack of public commemoration which suggests combination of ignorance and shame. There were no brass bands played when they came back. Kind of like Vietnam, right? They, they were treated as if they'd been involved in something dirty. almost oh, definitely like Vietnam. The organizer of the Palestine Veterans Association told the Sunday Times recently, ignoring anniversaries such as those, especially at a time when the poppy appeal is given ever greater public prominence, uh, amounts to selective commemoration, which acts against learning from military and diplomatic mistakes. Yeah, so that's uh, – that's, I'm more into this because uh, we had – when Claire Lopez was on, she talked about the history of Palestine uh, and the British mandate. And once it was over, you know, Israel was there. The Palestinians uh, – there was never a Palestinian state. It was never declared a state uh, like the state of Israel. Um, and so the Palestinians were basically refugees from other Arab countries. Uh, and so the idea of a two-state solution for people that never had a state is rather interesting. So anyway, we're going to look more into this. But that's my show for today. And so it's been, it's been a pleasure going over all these different things and hopefully bringing some history that you heard of or thought of. Now, of course, you can do more research on your own. But I'll be back Monday, probably uh, on something, maybe the, uh, uh, the Ukraine is the world's greatest money laundering bank. <laughs> I think that's what I might be talking about. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. You never know. Anyway, Action Radio, We've got if you want to sponsor us, we've got a couple of places, and I'm going to look for a new one. Um, we've got Give, Send, Go. Uh, dot com slash action radio. Uh, if you want to be if you want to sponsor us and make a commercial I can make commercials for you if you want to be a corporate sponsor, paypal.com slash paypal me slash action radio. My uh, email, Greg at writeyourlaws.com. And we've got of course our bill site where we write our bills, writeyourlaws.com. W-R-I-T-E, Y-O-U-R-L-A-W S, writeyourlaws.com. Any other information you might need or Skype line, uh, other things like that, it's all on the broadcast page right in front of you right now, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. Anyway, again, this has been an exciting week, and many more weeks to come. We had the election this week. Uh, We had the geldings. We'll see if the geldings can act like uh, the grand old party instead of the gelding old party and actually bring about victories in both the Senate and the House. I'm sure I'll have much more news for you Monday uh, on that as well. Have a good weekend. I'll see you Monday morning at 7 a.m. Central Time. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio?